Hello and welcome to FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today, my guest is Kyle Simpson. Kyle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here. Fantastic. So, on your LinkedIn page, below your name, you say you know your like, your tagline or your subheading is "fighting for the people behind the pixels." Should we start there? The story behind that. Yeah, that sounds good. There's not actually a real story behind it, but I can just sort of elaborate. Uh, there's not like a, a trademark branding around that phrase or anything like that, but I came to it kind of over time and just sort of stumbled on the alliteration of that one day and, and liked it and it kind of stuck. I think it was literally a LinkedIn post maybe that I coined it and I was like, ooh, I like that. I'm going to stick with it. Um, but, you know, more broadly... I would say that a significant portion of my technical career, which is going on about 25 years now since I've been uh, professionally working in software development. And I would say that over, actually probably more than 25, I'm older than I thought, but anyway, at least 25 years, over that period of time, I've really felt that technology has you know, it's cliche to call it the double-edged sword, but that it has this opportunity or this, this ability to be used for such tremendous good, but also for really such tremendous bad. And I always felt that because of my privileges, my opportunities, my position, that I had a responsibility to fight for something more than just myself. And I'll be honest that I had different answers for what that fight was about at different points in my career. But it was when I started teaching, which was back in 2012, that I realized that what my real purpose, what I was really fighting for, was to level the playing field for people. There's a lot of power dynamics at play. In our industry, that's not a surprising claim. There's a lot of those power dynamics. And I felt that my positions and privilege and my opportunities meant that I had a responsibility to fight for those with less of that. And my way of doing that, there's lots of ways, but my way of doing that is through empowering people with knowledge transfer. As an author and as a teacher, that's what I'm about. Is, is pushing out knowledge and telling people directly and indirectly that they deserve that. They deserve to have, they deserve to be talked to like an adult. They deserve to be trusted with the sacred knowledge instead of told that they couldn't possibly understand it. And that was the sort of power dynamic that I pushed back on a lot. And so the first part of that fighting for people comes from that. Then the behind the pixels part, really what rounds out that, comes later in my story. Um, I would say probably in the last five or six years. And it is much more personal. Uh, I'll be a little reserved in exactly how deep I get into it. But there were a couple of experiences that I had on social media 
specifically around Twitter, which I guess we're now supposed to all call X, but I still call it Twitter. Yeah. And I mean, if we uh, call, um, sorry to interrupt you, but if we're calling the yeah. X, what are we calling a tweet then? Like before <laughs> Twitter tweet, it kind of, you know, it, go, it went, uh, but, yeah. you know, what are we calling a tweet but on X? I, I think it's supposed to be called a post because that's the button, that's the label they put on the button for that's a post. such a generic, like tweet, like when it's, you heard tweet, you knew yeah. it was Twitter. Whereas post exactly. could be Facebook, it can be Twitter, it can be LinkedIn, it can be, it, it's, it's anything that you can actually just post on, hence why it's so generic. Also the, the you know, the gerund form of that, like what are you doing? I'm tweeting again was such an, a recognizable thing. That's what I'm doing. Posting mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything. My uh, my company's CEO calls it Xing X I N G. So maybe that's slightly better. I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, I think that. I mean, okay, it's more specific, but it's it. No, it just doesn't have the same ring as tweeting. No, it's like it when you search for something, you know, you say Google it. Like it, it's become like a word so synonymous with a particular you know action. Uh, whereas you're tweeting like you know you, you you tweeted or he tweeted this you knew what platform to go on whereas if you say no i posted it without specifying x.com you don't know what platform to go on it's just okay what pl- like what what and also what's the like the format of this have you posted a video on youtube have you posted you know a song on soundcloud like then what have you actually posted yep i totally agree it's yeah. a it's a funny little side conversation for us, but I I think of it as a major branding fail. It's almost the anti-branding, like let's remove all branding around this. And I don't know. Oh that yeah, guy's I'm... rich enough that he gets to do experiments like that. But it's yeah, crazy. he is. But uh, but the thing is, if you like know anyone that knows the history of Elon Musk and like his companies, he had you know initially X.com, which was a you know a payment service like paypal and then they formed to become paypal x then paypal and then he got that got sold off to ebay so uh, to to me it's just a you know him uh, uh, like rekindling the old days using what he had with that because he bought that domain a few years ago he said he was for nostalgic purposes but then from what i read he left uh, you know that sort of he, he had issues with the partnership at paypal and then with his you know, x.com, because I think apparently, if I read correctly, he wanted to use Windows servers, they wanted to use Linux servers, and there was some falling out behind that. So uh, uh, the whole thing of x.com and then him trying to, you know, say that it's it's trying to like become some sort of suite of application, I think he compared it to WeChat, how they have it in China. It it just feels like the story's been added on top and it's not a genuine story relevant to x.com. Yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's accurate. Um, to add more fuel to that, I I saw a conspiracy theory level uh, discussion recently that I guess there's speculation that some steel company here in the U.S. that has the stock t- ticker symbol X that they are being bought, and there's a there's a theory going around that they're being bought by Tesla. Because Musk wants the X stock ticker symbol for the for the stock market, and I mean, so I guess he's really attached to that. I, if, again, it feels like the absence of a brand to me. I don't feel like X is something that can be a brand, but maybe I'm just missing it. Oh yeah, I, I mean, 
I feel like they're trying to do a brand, but I feel like it's, you know, it's failing so badly that it's just, uh, yeah, I, I just don't see where it's, you know, going. If he, if if they created, like, you know, how Google, you know, it's still Google, effectively, but they have, you know, the Alphabet group and then the companies within it. If they said, okay, you know, we're still going to have Twitter, it's going to rebrand with X or X group as, you know, this parent company. And within that, there'll be Twitter, which will be the main thing. And then we'll do these side things as well, you know, like how they did Vine a few years ago and whatever else they do. That I could understand more, but renaming it 100% to, you know, x.com because Facebook didn't do that when they went to Meta. They kept it as facebook.com. They, you know, Google didn't do that with google.com. They kept it google.com. You know, Alphabet is technically something else. So I feel like it's tried to do something, but just not done what, you know, the other companies did. And I think they did it better in terms of a rebranding. Yeah, yeah, I would concur with that. Yeah, it's a weird one. And I can't remember the exact specifics, but I remember reading an article about a week or two ago where somebody had some sort of Twitter handle and it was was like a really short Twitter handle. I think maybe something to do with images or something. And he got notified that his Twitter handle is no longer available. Basically, Twitter's taking it back because they're going to, implement some functionality with it and they gave him yep. some options of alternative handles <laughs> yeah they totally stole his handle yeah they didn't uh, even pay him money for it they just no no they i, I mean they, 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 they he just gets an email and i remember seeing the twitter handle like some of them were like i don't, I don't know if he was images but if it's like like image one two three you know something along those lines i was like he had such an amazing handle for all these years and then they just take it away from him yeah, it's tragic. But, you know, people are using it as a reminder of the idea that when we're on other people's platforms, we are renting space. We don't own it. Right? So your your Twitter handle is rented. It's not owned. Um, and that's a shame because people do, you know, build brands and identities and, and things. Uh, ironically, that's actually an interesting way to, to segue back into my completion of the answer to your earlier question about where fighting for the p- people behind the pixels came from. Um, <clears throat> so my, my story of some difficult and painful experiences on this on specifically on the Twitter platform, it comes from the fact that I had spent a prolonged period of time, almost a decade, building up a pretty large, at least for tech Twitter uh, purposes, a large uh, social media following on Twitter under the Getify, G-E-T-I-F-Y handle. Um, And uh, I was using that, that Twitter account to push out lots of different kinds of messages I would say 80 to 90% of them were something web or JavaScript related. So there was a pretty strong branding, if you will, that was happening from that. And most people that knew me in social knew me from the JavaScript conference world, the JavaScript book world with my You Don't Know JS books, or some of the open source JavaScript libraries that I had built. So they came to expect web and JavaScript discourse from that handle. And I 
didn't do anything intentional to create that as a brand that I hid behind. In fact, I almost did the opposite. I, I sort of made myself Getify and like people would just refer to me like, oh, there's Getify when they would see me at a conference or whatever. Like Getify wasn't some separate brand for me that I worked for. It was just me. It was just a nickname for me. And I happened to be really passionate about web and JavaScript. So I talked a lot about that. But over that period of time, uh, the there happened something that I didn't realize until well after the fact. And it took quite a bit of thought and I would say introspection um, to use my therapist's terminology. <laughs> I did a lot of introspection on what happened. And what happened was that I, I thought all of these people are following me because they like me. Uh, they like what I have to say. And what is actually true is that all of the following that I built up was built under a progressively, an implicit, but a progressively stronger and stronger implicit contract that what they were really following was that flavor of outsider uh, JavaScript web iconoclast, right? It was it was a it was a brand in in and of itself, and it was the one that was not willing to pick fights, and I'm sorry, not unwilling to pick fights, and not afraid to push back on the status quo. And so the, the people that were following that were not actually thinking about me as a person. They were thinking about that as an account that pushed out that kind of messaging. And it became, in their minds, I think, a very separate thing from me as a person. And so that account started to develop expectations around it. This is not a, this is not a unique story. I think probably most influencers and brands have a similar version of this story, but I'm recounting my personal take on it. That... I didn't realize that that's what was happening. And so when I tried to use that account for more personal things, meaning that I wanted to speak out on some other topic besides JavaScript and the web, there was a lot of pushback that I would receive. And over the years, it was kind of like, there, you know, there people are like, stick to the web and JavaScript, you know, when, whenever I'd bring up a topic like politics or religion or some other social issue that I might care about. And it, those were always just sort of random things. And I pushed back on people hard. I was like, you're not going to police what I say on here. This is my account. I can say whatever I want. I'm a person. I'm a whole person that has lots of thoughts and feelings. And if you don't like it, there's nothing requiring you to follow this account. So I was pushed back on it. And I didn't really care that there were people that didn't like that. But I, I should have paid attention to the fact that that expectation and that contract was kind of growing. So, uh, what happened was about four or five years ago, I, I'm not actually keeping track on the calendar anymore, so I don't really know what year it was, but somewhere in that 2018 or 2019 timeframe, I posted a series of tweets one morning. Um, it was actually the morning of my son's birthday. We were going to do a birthday party for him later that day. And I, I just had a, I had a shower thought that came to a series of tweets and it was on a political hot button topic in the US, which was about health insurance and how 
bonkers this country is with how it treats um, health insurance and health care and how those are unfortunately so intertwined. Health care isn't really health care. It's actually just did you get the discount from health insurance or whatever. But anyway, I'm not, not here to re re uh, litigate that whole topic, but it was on that topic, which is hot button, still hotly debated, still not a lot of agreement on this topic. And I wanted to make a commentary on it. And I, I was being both truthful and very sarcastic, intentionally very sarcastic. And I decided to compare the concept of how we treat healthcare to the how, how we treat and health insurance to how we treat cars and car insurance. And so I had a series of tweets where I was talking about this and I was, I, I thought I was being very deliberately tongue in cheek, like, you know, just like we can, a, a car gets old enough that you trade it in. You know, if a people person gets old enough, you could trade them out. You know, that I was deliberately trying to be very sarcastic about it to make the point that we are not thinking about health insurance in the right way. Uh, I posted those tweets went off to do my son's birthday, live a real life. And when I came back, it was a literal shitstorm of pushback from people saying how cold and inhuman it was to say that we could throw grandma out like we throw out a beater vehicle and just like this, this oppressive level of like deliberately misinterpreting what I was saying or, or whatever. And I tried to, I tried to clarify and nobody cared about the clarification. Anyway, that part of that story was like, I realized that that audience isn't interested in me sharing a personal thought, even if it's a sarcastic social commentary. If it's not on web and JavaScript, it's going to potentially get this, this bad out. And, and it was bad enough that I decided to leave Twitter. And I fully intended to never go back to Twitter. I was gone for an entire year. I shut down the app. I logged out of the account. I never went back. Um, I had some Google alerts that told me things. And for a couple of months, people were still chirping about me, but I didn't go back to Twitter and I was fully intending to stay gone. Unfortunately, I saw a huge decline in my business, my business being at that time booking my, um, my corporate trainings and appearances at web conferences and things like that. That was my actual business. I worked for myself and I saw a massive and uh, very, very clear decline. I plotted it on a chart to the closing of my Twitter account, uh, over 40% decline in, in my bookings. So my business was really harmed by leaving the social media sphere. So after a year, I decided, okay, I've got to somehow come back. And I was thinking about what I did wrong, what I, how, how to avoid it. A lot of people were like, man, you just, you know, just stick to the technology. And if you want to do personal, just, you know, do that elsewhere, do that on another account or whatever. And so I had to come to some realizations about things. The reason why I used one account for all of it is because it's not at all satisfying ego wise to have a personal account that 11 people, including my mom, follow and shout out social commentary on this personal account that 11 people here and it never does anything. The only reason why that's useful or interesting to shout out to the world is if I have a big following like 85,000 followers or whatever it was. 
Um, and so I was deliberately trying to use this account that I had built on the expectations of web and JavaScript as a way for me to also make other things. It's kind of like when celebrity gets up at the Oscars and, you know, they're voted there because they're a good actor, but then they want to say their piece on climate change or what some other social issue. I support that they ought to be able to do that, but that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to use that platform to make social commentary. And I hadn't been intentional about that up until that point. And I realized I got to intentionally think about this and decide if that's what I want to do, because it can come with this, this backlash and it can harm my other web technology brand if that backlash happens. So I came to that conclusion. I realized, wow, I'm really kind of addicted ego wise to this idea that I'm smart. I'm, you know, all of these privileged things that I could tick off. I'm white, I'm educated, I'm American, I'm male, all these things. And I think that all of that kind of wires my brain into thinking that if there's a topic out there being discussed, my opinion on that topic is important and relevant. And I ought to insert my opinion into it because I'll make the conversation better simply because of what I have to say. That's what I realized I was addicted to that idea. It's an ego stroke. If somebody's talking about something, Getify is going to come along and tell them what they think, you know, tell them what he thinks about it. So all of this introspection was, if I come back to Twitter, how do I come back in a way that insulates me from some of that and sets any kind of clear boundaries? And I wasn't even sure whether I wanted it because, again, this is kind of my therapist speak here from talking to my therapist, which, by the way, we should normalize. I have a therapist. I go weekly. For mental health reasons, this should be totally normal for people and more people should have therapists. But anyway, um, you know, I realized that I was basically trying to uh, fill something in myself, right? I was trying to fill this, this need or this desire to be like wanted and accepted. And, 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 and part of that was this addiction to being having my ego stroked or whatever. And, and part of it was that I did not want to be, uh, I did not want to isolate different parts of myself. I wanted this whole authentic me out there. This is still to this day, a really important part of my DNA, having this whole authentic self. And this idea of like, just stick to the web or the JavaScript is, it's, and it's anathema to me right? This idea that I would uh, segment off myself. And I literally like told my therapist, I was like, that is textbook definition of sociopathy. If you can like totally wall off parts of your personality from each other and they have no bleed over and no effect. And I'm like, I don't want to be a sociopath, you know, sociopath just to participate in quote unquote social media. So one of the things I had to come to terms with was the fact that the social media is actually built to deliberately hide the humanity behind all of these connections. That's where the behind the pixels thing first came from. It was like, we're, we're totally, we're not forgetting the people behind the pixels. We're deliberately hiding the people behind the pixels and we're, we're forgetting about them and ignoring them and not treating them as real people. So what, it, what I say to people I say to their brand, their online moniker, 
And it's up to that person, whether they interpret that in a positive light or whether that, you know, causes them to have a terrible day if I said something bad to them. And the same was true of me. And I wasn't doing a good job of regulating all those emotional throttles for myself. So I debated, can I come back? Can I participate in this world and somehow mesh this with it? And I realized that one of the things I would need to do is I would need to be more open and honest about these problems and try to balance what I was saying on that Twitter account and maybe find other places to, to share these thoughts. And so anyway, the, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I came back to Twitter about a year after leaving and I was on Twitter for maybe two years. And then in December of 2021, I had another shower thought and idea. This time it was on technology and on our industry, but I had another thought and an idea and I put out a tweet about it and logged off for the day to do something else family. I don't know what it was that day. Maybe it was go to a sports game or something like that. But anyway, I, I posted a tweet. The tweet was effectively, uh, we really are doing ourselves as an industry a disservice by hiring junior developers, new people into software development, even just new people onto a team, and then expecting and allowing and promoting and encouraging them to jump right in on writing code in the production code base without first empowering them with this really important knowledge that the rest of us have learned the hard way, which is that we are always constantly creating messes, creating problems for ourselves. And the more senior you become, one of the things you learn is how those messes happen. And more importantly, how do you clean them up? How do we find them? How do we, you know, people put all kinds of labels like tech debt or whatever, but like, I just call it the messes that we make for ourselves. I included, I've made, can't even count how many messes. And so the tweet was effectively saying, you know, maybe we ought to, just like a janitor has to learn how to, how, how to clean messes or whatever, maybe we ought to be teaching people this stuff before we ever expect them or allow them to start writing code. We should have, and the intent was, Senior developers need to impart that knowledge to the people that are coming in that are new to the team and new to the industry. We need to show them how this works and show them what mistakes we make. That was the intent. And, and I don't remember the exact wording, but that's basically what the tweet was about. This tweet was, again, completely flipped around to mean something entirely different from the intent. And what it was interpreted as was that I was saying, Junior developers should only do the shit work. They shouldn't ever be allowed to do anything interesting or meaningful. Uh, that it was gatekeeping to say that you shouldn't be a software developer if you don't have all this already knowledge. And that was hurtful in and of itself because that's the complete opposite message of my entire career up to this point. I've never once been about gatekeeping. I've always been about trying to empower with knowledge. So it was... It couldn't be more opposite from my message. Uh, and it was not the randos on the internet. I, I think I had come to the point by then where I was okay with random people having random mean things to say about me. It wasn't the randoms on the internet that really bothered me. I had a bunch of friends, people that I knew, people that I respected, people that were colleagues, 
uh, equals in the industry, well, very public figures, people that knew me and knew what I had stood for and been about for all these years. And those people in seeing this tweet and in interpreting this tweet in a particular way, instead of saying, wow, I don't love that. And maybe we should like clarify or try to talk about it. Those people immediately jumped to the, to that bandwagon of the worst possible interpretation piled on and their entire huge followings piled on. So it created a real giant snowball effect. And all of that probably would have been, I probably would have been able to make it through that. But then another group of people on the internet latched onto this tweet. Don't know how, but it was a group of very vocal and active people in the Black Lives Matter movement and in some of those other movements, which I have lots of respect for, by the way, just to be clear, but they're not at all related to what I was talking about. (laughs) That's a totally different uh, movement. But they latched on to this and called it a racist tweet because they said that my usage of this idea of janitor, janitor is historically a job that is often by people that are African-American or black or, or other minorities, and that I was being racist in, in my, there was some kind of coded racist message in this uh, film, which again, <laughs> there's no truth, zero truth to whatsoever. But they piled on. And they started getting much more active about it than just the tech folks that were saying mean things to me. These people started contacting employers and book publishers to get um, boycotts and bans of my work. And I started getting threats of harm in my DMs, and I quickly had to turn those off. Um, So this spiraled way out of control, way worse than the previous time. And I left Twitter again. And would not have ever come back to Twitter if it weren't for my new employer kind of begging me to use that, that profile for, for the benefit of trying to promote the company. But I just had this really contentious relationship with social media and I've been burned and hurt personally and had to do a lot of work in therapy to get over the trauma of these experiences. And So this was a long 30-minute answer to what was probably intended to be a very simple intro question. But the real reason that I'm fighting for the people behind the pixels is because there are people behind the pixels. And this entire industry is ignoring that. And if I'm the only one, I'm just going to keep in every possible way reminding us that that there are people that run software. This is not, at least not yet, we're not in the era of computers talking to computers and humans have been cut out of the equation. There are people there and we need to remember that. And we should be designing software much more thoughtfully to elevate the humanity behind the pixels rather than to hide it. Um, so that's the long winded answer to your question. Okay. You know, a lot to unpack there. There's a few, you know, serious points I want to you know discuss, but before we discuss that, a light-hearted one. So the you know fight for the people behind the pixels is that a take on? Because when I first read it, it reminded me of Tron. You know, fight for the user. Uh-huh. Is there any yep. relation to that? Are you a fan of Tron Definitely. at all? I, I am a fan of Tron. Obviously, uh, I've been a tech nerd for a, for a long, long time. I love I love Tron, and I love the I fight for the user. I I literally thought about. Uh, 
doing a Tron branded shirt with my fight for the people behind the pixels message on top of that. I, I decided not awesome to, cause I didn't, <laughs> it would, but I, I didn't want any kind of like trademark, uh, legal problem if I use the like Tron logo and branding or something like that. So I didn't do that at least not yet, but yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a connection there. Definitely. Fair enough. And you know, when this was happening, when you was getting, you know, you know, this comment that, and I do actually agree with the comment that, you know, you do get a lot of people that get hired into companies uh, you know, especially when they have complex code bases, you know, the codes, the, you know, it, the code base is like a decade plus old. Obviously, you know, they're adding to it, they're upgrading it, but, you know, it's a huge old code base and they're just expected to with very little resources a lot of the time, with very little training a lot of the time to just jump in, do it, test it, do all the things that are involved in, you know, writing good code and then they do get blamed you know whether that's directly you know on an email or like a one-on-one call one-on-one call with the manager or sometimes the manager can be a bit more of you know a douche and you know do in front of everyone especially if it's just the first time the the juniors do you know doing it i don't think that's you know necessary so yeah there definitely does need to be you know training uh, you know something to alleviate that and obviously, there's, I think, various ways you can go about that. One, put them on smaller projects initially, something that has less scope, less impact on the business, especially financially, but also reputation. The other thing is just ensure, and, and this is not to do with the actual, you know, developer or who whoever you're hiring, have good documentation, have a, you know, good standard set for the code, you know, for your project, commented it you know comment it you know with the documentation put videos in like that's a thing that i see a lot at companies you go there and like they got no documentation and the code base is pretty large they got like hundreds of files and you're just thinking there's no documentation at all how any of this works and there's some of it that hasn't that was written like a few years ago even the person who wrote it doesn't know how he works anymore fully or you try and do something it doesn't work you know you tell the person uh, they think you're done but when they look at it it's not working the way they expect it to like the result you're not getting the right result and a lot of times that's just lack of documentation and then obviously that links into the training aspect so i do you know agree with this but when all that was going on what level of following did you have so we can get an idea of you know that sort of following that's when you was getting that sort of sort of you know hate uh, obviously from some of the groups and then also you know misconstruing your message at the peak of my twitter following there was a reported figure of 87,000 something followers um it's a little bit telling that when I left Twitter completely and I was very clear and obvious in the profile and the messaging when I, I shut it down and I was like, I'm not coming back and go away and leave, you know, this, this account is dead now. Um, in, in that period of time over multiple years, it, it only dwindled from 87 down to about 77,000. So my guess is about 76,500 of those are either dead accounts themselves or bots or something else. I'm not sure there's a lot of humans that are following that account. But anyway, um, it was about 87,000 at the time all of this was going down. Okay. And was that just only Twitter or did you have any other social platforms that you was on? 
There are other platforms that I was on at the time. I was somewhat active on Reddit, for example, and um, there were a couple of other smaller ones. I was not at all active on LinkedIn until I started trying to leave Twitter. So I'm extremely active on LinkedIn now, and I would consider that to be my primary social media platform now. I'm almost completely inactive on Twitter and, and hope to stay that way. I don't really do much on Reddit anymore for some of its problems of late. Um, so LinkedIn is kind of my, my primary platform. And one of the reasons for that, I guess, is because, you know, it has its problems. But on LinkedIn, there does seem to be a pre prevailing thought that you have to be careful how you act there because your profile is connected to you as a person. And more importantly, it's connected to other people that you do business with and that you get a salary or paycheck or customers from or whatever. And so there's, there's just maybe a, a more built in sense that we have to remember that we're all humans discoursing stuff. We can still disagree. We can still insult, but you know, there's a level at which that discourse never really seems to devolve to on LinkedIn the way that it does on Twitter. I can't really imagine on LinkedIn people trying to dox each other or organize protests over each other or whatever. It just, that's not the, to, to, uh, to misappropriate the cultural term, that's not the vibe there on LinkedIn. Um, and so it feels a lot safer. And, and I, I use that word very on purpose, very intentionally. I don't feel safe in most social media spheres. And that's weird to say because I'm the dude with all the privilege. I ought to be safe anywhere that I go. I don't feel safe in those places. I, I legitimately don't. I feel safest, safer and safest in a place like LinkedIn, which is why I've chosen to build my, my social media presence much more there than elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand what you mean, you know, LinkedIn, because like you said, you know, there's connections with people that you do business with, managers, recruiters, and ultimately people that are going to be throwing money your way. There's definitely a certain level of professionalism. I like there'll be loads of posts I'll see that are that might be a bit controversial, or you know, if that post was on Twitter or Facebook, you know the shitstorm that would go on. Whereas in there, even the ones that disagree, like even the messages, like the well structured, like the the well structured, the grammar's correct, and even if they disagree, it's in a done in kind, it's kind of laid out in a professional way. So yeah, there definitely is that, and also the fact that, I mean, okay, I guess you can create a fake identity on LinkedIn, but how many you know profiles do you come across there? you don't know if it's them or not. Like, whereas on Facebook and Twitter, there'll be loads of them. Like with just yeah, random exactly. names. Yeah. And I think partly because you, it's expected to have your real proper name on there that you're not going to see someone just put, you know, you know, like on your LinkedIn, you got Kyle uh, and then, you know, Getify Simpson. You're not going to just have Getify on there. Whereas on Twitter, right. you would have that. Uh, you know, yep. on another social exactly. platform you would have there. Whereas Kyle Simpson is the primary thing. And then you put Getify on there because that's, you know, part of your brand as well. And, you know, part of, you know, what you're doing. So, yeah, the 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 fact that it isn't really that anonymous just by the way people use it. And I think because most people treat it like the workplace and with some prof level of professionalism, 
even the ones that would be willing to, just because everyone else doesn't, they just don't do it. It's like mm-hmm. if you rocked up to a law firm, working at a law firm, everyone's wearing suits, and you rock up in shorts and a t-shirt, everyone's going to look at you weird. No one's going to be clapping for you. Like, uh, right. <laughs> even, even, if, even if they like what you're wearing, everyone's going to be like, what are you doing? Whereas, just for the record, I'm an avid shorts wearer. So yes, I feel this co- completely. I'm I'm not gonna feel comfortable in a room full of suits. No, sure. e- exactly. And the, so I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt right now. But like, if I dressed the way I'm dressing right now, and probably the way you're dressing, and walked into a professional setting like that, or a courtroom or something like that, you you know you're gonna feel you know you're gonna stand out nobody's going to be on your side because they don't want to get ostracized. Whereas obviously if you go to a tech company and you're more dressed up, then that stands out. So because everyone on Facebook and Twitter is a bit, is a bit more childish and a bit more willing to, because of the anonymous nature of it, then, you know, people don't mind doing it. Whereas on LinkedIn, uh, people are definitely a lot more hesitant because if you know anyone, anyone that's listening, if you know them on LinkedIn and you've got their Facebook or them on Twitter, I have a look at their difference in, you know, content. It'll probably be pretty different. Pretty different. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, LinkedIn, there being a big rise in, you know, people like yourselves creating followings on LinkedIn and providing a lot of, you know, posts on there, a lot of content. I know another guy who, he used to work at Amazon, he, Amazon Games, he's just recently left, and he's got a huge following on there. I asked him about, you know, have you ever thought about doing, you know, like using all the social media in any major way? He's like, no, this is the one that, you know, I enjoy, feel most comfortable with. Probably, you know, certain aspects, you know, what you were saying resonate with him as well, but he, he doesn't really use anything else. He happens to have a YouTube channel where he puts some videos on, but the majority of his time, social media, you know, posting is on LinkedIn. And he actually allocates at least an hour a day to LinkedIn posts. You know, he writes really long posts and, you know, they are well researched, well thought out. And, you know, he suits his, you know, job as well. So, yeah, definitely the, you know, I've seen a huge rise in it you know, over the last few years where you gain people with a lot of following. Because before, the people who had the huge followings were the ones that were already known in the business world, you know, like the founder of some company, you know, the manager at some, you know, business that everyone knows about. Like, you know, Bill Gates is obviously going to have loads of followers. You know, that's just going to be a given. Whereas, you know, now you're getting people like yourself that have huge followings, but they're not a household name like Bill Gates, for example. So yeah, it's definitely becoming a new, it's an old platform, but that's becoming a new social media platform and a means for being able to, you know, post long form. That's the other thing is obviously Twitter, you can't post long form. Facebook, yeah. Unless you pay for it. Yeah, (laughs) unless you pay for it, which most people aren't going to. And because from the start, he wasn't there. That I mean, I feel like with Twitter, because of how he was at the start, that's how it is still perceived the short form platform. Like if you want to post longer, you use Facebook or LinkedIn if you want to be professional or something else or medium, like you create some sort of blog for yourself. Twitter is for that, you know, the quick one. And even from people that obviously have the money, have the influence on there, they're still posting short, you know, tweets or Xing, Xings, Xs, whatever, whatever we're calling it, uh, short tweets. And it, 
it's due to the nature of the platform. Uh, but yeah, yeah, LinkedIn definitely has done really well. How have you found LinkedIn, you know, excluding the aspect of it being a bit more professional, so it's a little nicer to be on there, but just overall as a platform, as a, you know, something that you're interacting with, using, posting, compared to Twitter? I guess it's just that the bar is higher on everything, so you don't get the worst versions of, of any behavior. Like the worst thing I see on LinkedIn, which isn't great, but the worst thing I see on LinkedIn is the kind of um, influencer grind I need to show off so that I can get a better job kind of thing where people are just posting low quality usually not very accurate content about some technology like JavaScript. I, for a while I was like dropping in on conversations and correcting things. And I gave up, I was like, these people they are a dime a dozen. They're going to keep creating, uh, this low quality content. And that for them is their way to make themselves known and try to improve their job prospects and fine, whatever. Like, so, so I stopped, Stop caring so much about all of that. So, that, but that's like some of the worst behavior I see. I guess there probably are other bad behaviors. There's there's misogyny and other types of behaviors that crop up, and but it 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 just does not feel to me like any of those negatives are oppressive. That I can't get away from them if I run across a person that is being really unpleasant to talk to or sharing things that I really find, you know, offensive or don't want to promote or be around. I just, I unfollow. I don't even necessarily feel the need to block people on this platform. I just disconnect from them. And then it's just this freeing feeling like that's just not part of the graph I need to be in. I used to think that it was bad that we curate our circles because I, you know, it can so easily create echo chambers and I'm sure I have quite an echo chamber. But now I think that it's actually better for us to curate our circles for for no other reason than for mental health. Um, I I wouldn't in any other aspect of my life go and seek out the people that I am least like and that I least enjoy being around and choose to be around them regularly all day, every day, because that would just be bad for my mental health, my emotional health, probably my physical health. I wouldn't do that in the real world. So why on earth should I promote doing that in the digital world? I should find people that even if I disagree with them, that they're polite about it. That's who I should connect with. And that's who I do connect with. No, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think that's a, you know, there's a better way to interact online and just, you know, in real life as well. But yeah, LinkedIn, you know, I found it, you know, really good. I'm, you know, more active on there now than I was probably a couple of years ago. I think a couple of years ago, maybe even a year ago I wasn't really that active in terms of the post but definitely not two years ago and I would never have really fought a few years ago that I would be as active as I am but it's just become a platform where you can post you know it is more professional you can I can connect with people you know like yourself meet new people in a professional capacity because you know obviously you know that was lacking in the you know, the other platforms. But, like, you know, when all this was happening, you know, all, uh, you know, people turning against you, people, you know, misconstruing your messages, not the Black Lives Matter stuff, that's a separate one, but the one that were, you know, saying, uh, you know, you know, the, the one that were, you know, 
be negative were they i mean do you know if they were like junior developers senior developers or non-techy at all do you have any insights of that the people that i knew that bothered me the most when they were very negative against me were extremely seasoned and extremely public extremely visible feet you know, members as I, again, I called them peers, not trying to like toot my own horn, but I'm a fairly visible member of the community. And so my peers are also visible members of the community. They're people that have high profile positions. They do a lot of the conference talks. They do a lot of the online influencing and thought leadering and all of that stuff. Those are the people that are most directly my peers in that sense. And it was, it was people like that. Um, and those, again, you know, some, a lot of those people, I, I don't know, other than I just know their name or whatever, but there were, I would say probably about a half a dozen or so of those high profile folks that I absolutely know personally, met them in person, I've had a beer with them, that kind of personal, you know, wouldn't call them my best friends, but I absolutely know them personally. And moreover, they absolutely know me and my track record and what I'm about and what I'm for and what I try to do for this industry and to have those people so quickly assume that everything else that I've ever said about this topic, that that was all bullshit. That was all a lie. And that my real true self was that I'm a gatekeeper that wants to hold juniors down. And I want to create this elitism for people that like it for people to jump to believing that based on, you know, in concert with everything that I've ever been about, which has been the opposite of that, that was the most hurtful. And it's the thing that I still haven't gotten over. I, I have not gotten over the fact that it's not the thousand randos that say that about me. It's the five friends that say that about me that hurt the most. Yeah, I mean, the, that's always the case. It, I remember, you know, the, the way I always, you know, what I would say to my wife or anyone that I know is that if you don't, like, know them and, you know, you don't interact with them often or, you know, you have no interest being with them, you know, around them, their opinions and what they say shouldn't matter. It should matter as little as the person that you know, you'll never meet, you'll never know, said something bad about you halfway across the world and you'll never find out. And anyone that you will know will never find out. But when it is those few close people, uh, it, it, it you know, obviously can definitely you know be hurting. I mean, why do you think... It was because it sounds like it was more senior, you know, you say it's more senior, you know, seasoned people in the industry. What do you think about your message rubbed them up the wrong way? Because what you said, if juniors were, you know, complaining, I can kind of understand more so. Or even non-techie people, because maybe they're trying to break into the industry. Maybe they're learning, they're educating themselves, and they're, you know, taking it the wrong way and saying, oh, so you're saying I shouldn't get a good job straight away and I should have to do all, you know, all the rubbish work. But what do you think about the message that the seniors just did not like? Um, if I'm If I'm being honest, it's also a bit, ungenerous to them um and and maybe i ought to be try try to try to give a little bit more benefit of the doubt to those folks but i i really think the honest answer is that it is it is cool and popular to 
jump on the call out culture bandwagons. Anytime you find something problematic, you take the small problematic and make it into a massive problematic in part because you can use that as an, as a tool to try to get that message across to the thousand other problematic people. Right? So it's very cool and popular to take something like this. I'm not going to call this cancel culture or anything bullshit like that. Right. But it is very popular to take somebody who is a visible figure who says something that you find problematic, even if that thing is being completely misunderstood, which was the case here. But what even, you know, whether it was misunderstood or whether I had legitimately said something really bad that I regretted, which I don't, by the way, I don't regret it in, in any way. What I was trying to say, certainly regret that it didn't provide more context earlier on or whatever, but I don't regret that message. And I still believe in that message, but even if it was something that I did that I actually legitimately should regret and it was problematic behavior one, either way, the fact is that you can take a public figure and use them as an example. And I think that's what was popular to do at the time. It's still popular to do now find something problematic on a popular figure. If they find a random person with six followers that says something stupid like that, they ignore it. But when they find somebody saying something that they disagree with or that they misinterpret, who has 87,000 followers, oh, that's a huge thing that I can make a big deal out of and get across this, you know, this bigger message of we need to uh, cut out all this problematic gatekeeping or whatever. So whatever your social issue is for those people, they picked up on that. I think they picked up on the, the gatekeeping is bad in this industry. Here's this big public figure. We can use his tweet and his, uh, refusal to decry the tweet immediately. We can use that as an example to fight this bigger battle against it. So that's, that's what I think. Um, there's probably for each individual person a much more nuanced and fulsome explanation as to why they interpreted it wrong. That it might have been that that it felt a little too close to home to them. I don't know. Like there's there's probably a lot of other answers, but that's that's the best one I've got right now. Fair enough. I understand what you mean. You know, people you know, kind of using you as a vessel sometimes or the people as a vessel to, you know, put try and put their message across or, you know, be relevant, you know, effectively. So and you're right, if the person if you had six followers and nobody was paying attention and you you know made some comment, nobody would really care. Like it's it, it is just one of those things. Mm-hmm. So in your current role, you work at Socket Supply Co. as a principal software engineer. You know, what does Socket Supply do? And, you know, what are you doing there? Because I think there's some interesting, you know, stories around that as well. Yeah, I am thrilled to get a chance to talk about this. I'm glad that we get to segue into talking about Socket Supply. So a little bit of history. We're here in, you know, mid to late or, you know, second half of 2023 when we're recording this back in early 2023 beginning of the year is when I started at socket supply and I always tell people that ask me about it that I started working for socket supply when I found out that it existed I was having a conversation with the CEO Paolo 
found out he and I knew each other from way, way back, but we were on a call and five minutes into this call, he's telling me about the company that he built tiny little company, a few, a few employees he's telling me about. It, and I'm like, that's it. I'm quitting my current job. I'm coming to work there. Like I was like, whether you, you haven't even offered me a job, but I'm just telling you I'm coming to work there because what he described was exactly the company that I had wanted to build for myself, but I'm not a good CEO and building companies is not my strength and being the CEO of a company is not my strength. So it was like, I'm just going to come work at the company where this guy's already done the hard part of making the company come into existence. But it's, it's like working for a company that I would have built for myself. And it's the first time in my career. It's kind of the unicorn thing. Like it's the first time in my career where I can say unreservedly that I completely agree with, I deeply agree with what we're doing. So I, I'm glad to get to talk about it. So what is Socket Supply? Socket Supply builds and, and releases a free open source runtime. That runtime is designed to be packaged around a web app using whatever web technology you like to use. You're, you roll React, you're a Svelte person, you like Vue, you're vanilla JavaScript, whatever. Whatever the technology is that you like to build web apps with, we can take that web app, wrap it in a runtime, and turn it into a native app. Now, uh, we're certainly not the first to do that. There's been plenty of others that have made these hybrid runtimes. People will know names like Electron. They've probably heard of Towery. We could go back to other things like Ionic. We could go further and further back, all the way back to like PhoneGap, which became Cordova. Cordova. There's been Native Script. There's been a lot of these uh, purported technologies that have some way of taking a web app and making it into a native app. So we play in the similar space to them in that respect, and we're certainly not the first to do so. There's some really important differences that I'll cover in a, in a moment, but I just kind of want to lay the landscape. We're in a similar space to something like a Towery or an Electron. Our runtime is already built and working for every single major consumer computing platform. That is Windows, Mac, and Linux. It's also iOS, Android, and even Chrome OS. So just about every major consumer device that you want you can use our runtime to build apps for those platforms and distribute those apps. Now, the other big question that people are now wondering is, wait a minute, this open web guy who's promoted web and even talked badly about apps many, many times, what, what's he trying to convince us to do apps? So I wanna to be totally upfront about this. I do not believe that apps, especially apps in the app store, are the best answer for a consumer experience, at least as we know them, right? But I do believe that they are a vehicle to move this conversation forward in a way where it has really been stuck for a long time. So when I come to Socket, which is turning the web into a web of apps, it is in some respects a little bit of a compromise on my broader personal beliefs, but it's not a compromise from a principles perspective, it's a compromise from a pragmatic perspective that I believe the web has some inherent flaws to it. And I believe we can solve those flaws and push the web forward to its next version by embracing this idea and by using a tool like Socket. So you could really think of Socket as like a 
It's almost like an operating system for a different class of web app experience. Um, probably people know the terminology progressive web apps, PWAs. This is where you take a web app and then use a tool or maybe not even a tool, but you like install it on a device and then it sort of acts mostly like a regular app. You use a service worker and a few other things like that. I'm a big proponent of PWAs. I think they're great. So how does this differ? It's a half step further from a PWA because what I'm really promoting is what I would maybe call a packaged web app. So it's almost still PWA. We're just taking the P from progressive to packaged. But what it's doing is it's saying the web has certain capabilities that it is best at. And we should embrace and keep doing that. We're not telling people, get rid of all the web app building that you do that you know and love. There are some really fantastic parts of the web. There are also some parts of the web that are deeply weak. Like it is missing some really important functionality. We could really dive in deep onto why it's missing that functionality. I have a lot of opinions on that. But there's some missing, there's some gaps here. And I have spent the better part of a decade trying to promote the idea that the web needs to catch up on those things. It needs to provide those things. And the web has just not done so. And it's begrudgingly not done so. And so in some ways, me joining Socket is saying, we can't keep waiting for the web to independently come to this belief that it needs these things, that it needs to fill in the gaps. So in the interim, we need to get around those limitations by building web experiences into these packaged apps because these native apps, these packaged apps on these platforms do have those capabilities that we need. It's only the web that doesn't have. It's not like we're trying to invent stuff that nothing can do. It's just the web has been this second-class citizen. And in my effort to advance the web, to push the web into its next evolution, I think we need to rethink some fundamental assumptions. And the most important of those that I want people to chew on is why is the web inherently, right now as we know it today, why is the web inherently a cloud-first type of delivery? Why do we need the cloud and servers to experience what we know and love about the web? And, and I'll, I'll be so bold as to suggest an answer we don't, but there's a lot of people out there that cannot fathom a web that does not include the assumption of cloud and of servers. And what we're really trying to say is there is a, there is a web out there. There's a, there's a coming evolution of the web where servers stop being the primary central focus. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take the web and move it off of the cloud first model and into what I would call the peer first model. Okay, and I actually no, I'll, I'll go on to this other point in a second. So you know, you're talking about you know you know the cloud, cause, yeah, because everything has become you know the cloud. They they like the cloud this, cloud that. Everything becoming you know as a service, software as a service, hardware as a service, gaming as a service, which is just a subsection of software as a service. Social media was always as a service, and the, your payment usually was you know the ads and the data that you was giving them. But you know, like, what do you think of 
these you know softwares that were typically you would buy once like photoshop and if you was happy with the features and let's say it didn't run slow slow and your you know let's say system still supported it you could use it five years later like that was never a problem and i genuinely knew people that bought stuff like photoshop and because they weren't cheap they would buy it and for their needs it was fine a year later, two years later, five years later. They were still using an older version, but they had a legit version. They had no issues with, you know, the licensing or anything like that. And it was all good to go. Now with the software as a service, you don't own the software. You are paying a monthly fee and you get access to the software, but you're not even accessing it like in the cloud. You're like, you're, you're still downloading it. The monthly fee is just a verification fee effectively, and you're just using the software without ownership, but it's on your machine, taking up all that space. Uh, and it's very difficult to actually buy things these days, uh, you know, in this sort of space. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things at play. I think it's a good point and a good question. I think there's a few things at play. Number one, one of the biggest trends that happened in software is not just that we started charging it as a service, but we started developing software experiences that we could not distribute that service to. In other words, there are things that we were computing in the cloud and managing in the cloud that we could not just put on people's end user devices for a variety of reasons, including very practical limits on computing power and that sort of thing, right? You can't dictate to your your customer that they have to own the $5,000 highest end M3 Mac laptop or whatever. You, you have to have your software run on a lot of different environments that you that are not necessarily the most ideal and not necessarily as powered as what you've got going in the cloud. An example of this, uh, you know, AI is huge these days, um, a year and a half or so back. So before the big AI revolution, I spent some months consulting with a company that built an AI powered, a autocomplete plugin for code editors companies called tab nine. Um, and they were kind of on the forefront or early on in this trend of AI powered developer tools that learned things about code and about your projects and made really intelligent suggestions. As you were typing, it would pop in the autocomplete box and give you, you know, almost always it would give you a good autocomplete that it, it intelligently knew what you were trying to type on that line. So it's a very, very cool project. I'm, I'm a fan of those kinds of things. But the AI modeling that they were doing, the machine learning that they were doing on that, and this is back in GPT-2, way before three and you know four, this is GPT-2. But that was so intensive that when you ran it on your device, like it just zapped up all of the battery on your device. Your processor was running at 20 or 30% nearly constantly. And my battery life was like a third of what it was. And so they had a model where you could not run the machine learning system locally on your device, but they ran it out in the cloud. And of course, you'd pay a little five or 10 or whatever it was monthly fee. And you had to accept that that meant that maybe some of your data was getting sent out, some of your code data was getting sent out to be used in the machine learning on the cloud. Well, you know, should they have said, no, we're not going to offer any software as a service here. 
we're we're going to only have the you pay for it and you buy it you own it and just tell people sorry you have terrible battery life now i mean there's a lot of complications that go into why something might have been chosen to run out in the cloud and um and i think that's one of the big trends that led towards people just saying look all software can just be sold this way because there are parts of what we do that need to be out here for a variety of reasons. So it's just easier for us to put all the software out there. Let's just stop selling Photoshop. Just put it in the cloud right alongside all of the AI image manipulation routines that we're going to do in the cloud. Just put the software there itself. It's easier for that company. It's going to be easier for customers. So I think that's one of the reasons why this happened. Um, I think another reason why this happened, you know, pure greed, uh, we have ha- we've had a very strong push, not new, for a long, long time, for a couple of decades now, that if you want to get as successful as a business, you got to get a VC to back you. And VCs want subscription models. They want recurring revenue. And they'd rather have they'd rather try to have you go get 10,000 customers to pay you five dollars a month than to get five customers to pay you ten thousand dollars one time. That's just, that's what they want. They want the broader numbers and and that's how their models work. And that's how they believe that they're going to get their return on investment. So I think a lot of companies were influenced by that. They were influenced by the idea that they should flip these models around. And instead of having one big upfront cost, they ought to just try to provide these very low cost models and not care about the fact that retention rates can be half of what they used to be. Because if you get 20,000 people, it doesn't matter if half of them go, you still get your 10,000 number that the VC wants to see or whatever. So I I think that's another factor that led to it. Um, And then maybe the third factor is just that we got really, I think we lost track of the idea that computing devices could last a while. I mean, it, it would be sort of like, and maybe we're already there, but let me let me jump out of computers and software for a moment. Let's talk about cars, right? There's a huge revolution happening with like electric vehicles and maybe self-driving vehicles. I could do a whole podcast episode on why I think all that's bullshit, but like maybe that happens, right? But are we entering an era where there's no longer going to be such a thing as I buy a vehicle for 20, 30, 50, 80, whatever thousand dollars that I buy a vehicle and that I physically own that vehicle for as long as that vehicle can still mechanically run and suit my needs. That has always been the case for 150, whatever, almost 200 years. That's always been the way that ownership of vehicles has been. And are we saying now that we're moving into a model where you won't own a vehicle, that you will just borrow and vehicle share and rent and, you know, use the, use the auto self-driving fleet vehicle or whatever. Like maybe we're moving into that mode, but there's a natural resistance that people are exhibiting to that. Some people love the idea. Some people don't. I'm in the ladder camp. I don't love that idea. I like owning a vehicle. Um, and I, I like the idea that I can own a vehicle for a prolonged period of time. I think what happened with computing devices is that we already pushed this model out. We already basically said nobody keeps a computing, a personal computing device more than a couple of years. 
And so there's no need for us to build a piece of software that you can keep using exactly the same bits for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Everybody gets a new phone every year or two, or most people get a new phone every year or two. Most people get a new laptop every three or four years, if not more regularly. Most people get a new watch every year or two. Like all these personal computing devices really just became a shorter lifetime. And because of that, because devices have a shorter lifetime, the expectation of software having a long lifetime became somewhat less important, right? By the time I go to buy a new laptop, now I'm onto a new operating system where a whole bunch of new security and features are there. And of course, I'm going to want to upgrade to the newest version of the whatever software at that point. Uh, so I think those are some of the reasons why we've lost this notion of software ownership. I think we should resist going completely away from it. I think the ideas of software ownership can still exist and still be important. We just have to remember some of why that was good. Oh, yeah. And if you're given the choice, so for now you are, and I feel like they're trying to change it. But like if you look on like Xbox, they have Game Pass, and they have different tiers of it. But in essence, you know, you give a subscription per month, not a lot of money. You get a lot of games, you know, just part of the you know their library. Uh, but then also every month that you are subscribed, you get you know, games to add to your account as, you know, well. So it's like, you know, extra bonuses to, you know, stay subscribed. Uh, and it is a nice model to have from business perspective. But it's also nice for users because, you know, now that I'm getting older, I've got a family, career, you know, other responsibilities, I don't have as much time, unfortunately, to, you know, game. You know, sometimes I'll go on the Game Pass and I'll be like, oh, you know, this game's on here now? Like, I was thinking about buying this, but, you know, when it was $60, $70, when it was brand new, and now it's on here for free, and I, and I, and I still wasn't too sure if I was going to buy it or not. You know, I can check it out. But then the thing is, you can still go and buy uh, probably every or virtually every game that's on these subscription services. So if you don't want to go down that model, if you don't, if you want full ownership, you want like the, you know, the physical disc, you want to be able to resell it. You want to be able to lend it to a friend or a family or, you know, take it from one room to an, you know, another or something like that. You can do that. So having that model where you have the option of the subscription service and it's not a matter of subscription per game, you get a subscription for like a suite, like how, you know, Adobe, you, you know, you can subscribe for the whole suite, uh, but then, you know, you can physically buy the game or even digitally buy the game. It's not even a matter of you either physically buy the game, but if you want it digitally, you have to have a subscription. Maybe that's where they're going. But right now they have that kind of nice hybrid model, which I think it gives, you know, gamers a choice. And we've lost that in software and i think some things work really well as a subscription model take something like uh, you know shopify which is the backbone of many many websites around the world that you know e-commerce websites having a system like that as a service you know as you scale up your business as you gain more orders more users more traffic that scales up you know along with you and to provide some extra features as well for you know cms and you know that sort of stuff I think that's great, you know, versus using some of the conventional, 
you know, server-based hosting platforms, which again, you still have the option, which is nice. So you can go down the route if you want to, but you know, some of them can be, you know, costly and then there's problems with them as well. Sometimes technical issues, you have that, you know, I understand that more so, but even then you never was really buying your own servers. The average person wasn't, they were usually renting a shared server somewhere uh, somewhere else so that made more sense making it as a service it became a more robust business model i think for everyone but like you said when we're doing it to things that were typically ours in the home like you could have a computer in your loft potentially from 10 years ago if you have photoshop if if the computer turns on you'll be able to use that photoshop whereas as a service based software in 10 years unless you're still subscribed and then on top of that there's the other issue if the company and the servers that are doing this are still around it might not be a matter of oh i what i don't mind subscribing why if you know adobe goes down obviously adobe is a huge company it's unlikely to go down in the next few years but what if it does what if it decides that Photoshop is no longer profitable for them and they're going to get rid of that, you know, tool or one of their lesser known tools, Photoshop, Premiere Pro, they're here to stay for at least for a while. But some of the lesser known tools, they come and go. What happens? What happens then? Like, why if you base your business around one of these tools, you've got loads of software, you're, you've got loads of, you know, files that can only be owned, uh, I mean, opened by that piece of software. What do you do then? Whereas if you owned it, you could still open it and use legacy software and files. We don't have to hypothesize about this. We can look at Google and the famously known Google graveyard of all the services that were software as a services that they either mm. created or most of the time acquired and then ran for a while and then decided, oh, this isn't profitable. This doesn't make sense anymore. And they shut it down and people are just left completely out of luck. And so we can see both of those models very vividly illustrated. We, we know exactly what happens when the world moves to the only version of software is that it's as a service. I just want to say one other thing that I meant to say earlier, which is another aspect that I think contributes to this is a changing set of user expectation around how often software is updated. I remember back in the day when you purchased a, you know, a game um, that was it. Like you weren't ever getting an update to that until there was no. a sequel to the game, right? Or even other types of software. Maybe like an expansion. You, like they, the, you know, they maybe, started the expansions, yeah. and that was more PC. But yeah, it, that was rare. That was like the titles that did well. Yeah, but you bugs and all good, bad, whatever. You bought what you bought, and then it was those bits were done. Um, and there has been over the last decades a shifting assumption to, well, software companies never stop working. They're constantly working on software. So if they're going to change a piece of software, then I should be able to get that right away. Like if they add a new feature, if they fix a bug, I should be able to get that right away. When there's, there is some inflection point in there where you go from, I might get a piece of soft, I might get a software update to a piece of software that I bought, you know, like a, a traditional desktop software, like a photo editor or something, I might get an update to one of those twice a year, maybe three times a year. Right. And that still probably kind of makes sense in the, I bought it and I get one year of updates or two years of update with my one purchase. But when there's an expectation that I want that 
photo editing software updated on a daily or weekly basis. I want 52 updates a year to this thing with all the latest and greatest that you've got and whatever new features and whatever bug fixes and security enhancements. I want all of that and I want it almost always updated. At that point, if that's what users want out of software, then it is kind of, it's it's almost un- unreasonable for them to want that and also want the buy model, right? If they want their software to be constantly updated, and I think we clearly can see that a lot of the consumer population does, they, they've come to expect that their apps are just constantly updating. Well, then it really, you know, I can see a reason why a company's like, wait a minute, you want me to be constantly updating this, but never taking another dollar from you? What the hell? Like that, that becomes unreasonable. And I don't know where that inflection point is from a couple of updates a year to a couple of updates a week, somewhere in between those two, it starts to become much more reasonable that if you want that, the company should be able to charge you an ongoing fee for that. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. There's definitely that issue with a lot of users. They demand a lot. And sometimes they're demanding it from a company, which is small, does not have the immense resources to constantly just provide it. And, you know, a subscription model can really help them because, you know, they got regular cash flow. It means they can release these updates. They can do product development on that product, but other products as well. They can do research. They can do all that stuff. But then also, you know, likewise with the big companies as well, it does get to a point where at, you know, which point, do they say no and feel comfortable that they've supported it long enough? You know, uh, 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 same with games, same with everything. Because if they're no longer making money off the product, and maybe if, let's say, that product they initially sold you for a fixed you know, price, they never had any sort of in-app purchases in there or, you know, some something along those lines or, you know, advertisements or anything that was generating extra income, there has to be that cutoff point. Let's say take Photoshop. If you're selling Photoshop for two hundred pound, okay, that's a lot of money. But you know, you expect updates. But what? Ten years later, I mean, that's taking the piss a bit. Uh, it's not only going to hinder the development of new products because they're having to support old ones. It's also going to mean they're going to have to spend you know money on you know maintaining old versions. But like I said, if they people want the latest, greatest, they want updates, they want the best community support, all that stuff, having that subscription model is definitely, you know, a great thing. What I would like to see is kind of in between where they say, you know, you can buy it outright. This is the price. You'll get one, two, what, you know, whatever the number of years is. You get two years of updates, maybe priority updates, let's call it. And there may be minor updates for a year after. But if you want more than that, uh, you, you will have to subscribe to it and if you do subscribe to it you know you can have the newer version as well i think that would be nice so that way you know okay i'm gonna get x number of updates guaranteed assuming the company's you know up and running and the company's doing okay but after that i have to choose whether or not i you know really want the software and i really want the updates and you know a hybrid approach like that is definitely something that's needed but like you said where you know this is all heavily impacted by vcs when the vcs seeing that you know they can get ten thousand users five dollars a month fifty thousand dollars a month recurring income very quickly instead of getting you know five users paying ten thousand dollars each one you limit the type of user you can go after ten thousand dollars a lot of money plus also 
they're realistically not going to pay every year. It's going to be that one-off fee. And so it's more profitable to get get them on that, you know, $5 or maybe $4, you know, like get them a little cheaper even. So, Mm. yeah, there's definitely something I think that needs to be done around that area. So I personally feel, and this maybe kind of pivots a little bit back into the discussion around what I think socket supply and what I think this this generational movement of the web, I call it web 2.5, this evolution moment away from a cloud first to a peer first mentality. One of the things that I'm most interested in personally, this is not necessarily Socket's vision, but I think it's compatible. Personally, what I'm interested in is a model where apps are as freely exchangeable as data is. I remember seeing a conference talk from this guy named PPK. Some people will remember him. He was uh, he ran this uh, incredibly valuable web resource called quirksmode.org way, way back in the day. And it was like, it was like MDN before there was MDN. It was like where you went when you wanted to understand how, when it wanted to read documentation. Anyway, PPK gave this conference talk um, years and years, probably a decade ago now. And I remember it was almost like a, one one more thing kind of appendage to the end of his conference talk he he brought up the idea that why can't we transmit apps from one person to another directly by tunneling them over sms message like why couldn't we just if i've got an app and you want that app why do you have to go to an app store and pay for it and get it or whatever why couldn't i just give you the app you're like this is cool and i can just text it to you the same way I can text you a message or something. Um, and he brought up the use case of like some fisherman down in, you know, rural, whatever, maybe Africa or somewhere. And they're not constantly connected to the internet or whatever. Um, they need to understand what the current price of fish is in the market in the town, a hundred miles away so that they know how much to take or whatever. They're, they're not going to have like constantly connected internet there. No matter how many billionaire balloons we float up in the air, there are going to be people that live in these areas where they barely have any connectivity at all, but certainly not this constant, always on high speed internet that we like to believe is true. And so he was like, well, how does that person get information? They, they text, right? So why couldn't they just as easily get an update to the, to the fish trading app? via a text message in the same way that they could text a friend in the market and say, you know, what's it selling for? So he, that, that, that idea that he presented has burrowed itself in my mind. And I have been trying in, in ways to push this idea for a long, long time. I think this work at Socket is kind of maybe the first time that we might start to see a class of applications where that could really be true. Because what Socket really emphasizes and it's what makes us different from others so we emphasize this idea that you should be able to have instances of these apps talk directly to each other with no server middleman whatsoever. Since they're native apps, we can expose a fully capable UDP-based peer-to-peer protocol that's encrypted, that's fully zero server. We built all that. That's all there, and you just get it for free by putting your web app into a socket app. Um, I wish the web could do that itself, but it can't. And so the, the, the native app is how we do that. But now that you have that capability, your instances can talk to each other and they can share data back and forth. It's not too big of a leap to imagine that we could free ourselves from the app store 
uh, overlords, if you will, the centralization of app stores where apps have to be bought or, you know, subscriptions have to be paid for or whatever, to moving to a model where apps are as freely interchangeable on a peer-to-peer network as the data that they communicate on. And that's not science fiction. That's not completely impossible. That is something within the scope of, of possibility. And I hope that we build in that direction. And so I guess I would frame the conversation about software ownership as my personal belief is that we ought to just stop really making such a big distinction between the data and the app. Uh, The data and the services that we may have to pay for if they're coming from a premium service, I should be able to get data from a premium service if I'm paying for it in the same way that I'm able to get an app update from them. And I think we can blur the lines of those and stop making such a big distinction between the two. That's kind of where I'd like to see things move. Okay. I mean, that definitely sounds, you know, very intriguing. Now, listening to this, and I think a lot of audience members, audience members will feel the same. You know, it sounds like what a lot of people are talking about, web free, blockchain, crypto. You know, how does, you know, socket supply use those technologies what's your thoughts on those technologies because you haven't really mentioned those yet but your messaging seems very in line with what a lot of other people within that industry also promote or at least they say outwardly yeah so i guess the best way for me to answer that question is i deliberately didn't call it web 3 i called it web 2.5 for a reason And I'll provide a further piece of context to the listener. The job that I was at when I had the call with Paolo, the CEO of Socket Supply, and I was like, I'm quitting my job and I'm coming to work there. The job that I was at at that point, great job, but it was a Web3 company that I was working for. And I left a Web3 company to go work for a different company that I believe is more tangible and realistic to do right now, as opposed to my, my perceptions and thoughts that... There's a lot of really terrible stuff that I don't like about Web3. And then there's some really great stuff that I hope does eventually happen from Web3. It's a big mixture of that. And I don't think we know what's going to win and what's not. And there's a lot of problems with it. I just don't think that that, any of that stuff is going to happen very soon because I don't think the web is ready. I think there's too big of a jump that they're asking us to make from Web2 the way it is now into what they're proposing for Web3 which is why I've deliberately chosen to position this as Web 2.5. It's a, it's a more tangible step that I think we can move to more quickly, like in the next couple of years. Whereas I would think about some of the best ideas of Web 3 are probably more like a decade out. I don't think we're just right about to just have this big switch to Web 3. Just to clarify for people, um, from my understanding, having spent a few months working at a Web 3 company, um, what you need to understand about this concept of decentralization, which is a big buzzword in the Web3 world, the, the thing that's being currently decentralized is what we would traditionally think of as the backend of any application or service. That is all of the what we would normally think of as hidden proprietary business logic that You don't know what it is as a consumer of that service. You have no idea what it is. You have no idea whether it's going to do what you want. Are they going to fulfill their promises? 
where the, the Web3 world is proposing to completely invert that model and to completely decentralize nearly the entire back end of any business into what are called smart contracts, meaning the code is out there publicly known, visible out in the world. It's on a blockchain, so it's completely immutable. And because it's there and everybody can see it, everybody knows exactly what it's going to do. You know exactly what you're getting. You don't have to read like the terms of service and see what they're promising. You can just see the code and see if I send in this kind of data or this kind of money or whatever, I know exactly what's going to happen because I can see it and I can audit it. That's the general premise behind smart contracts is that we put all this code immutably onto a blockchain. That way everybody can see it and everybody can trust that the outcome is completely predictable. That's at least in theory, that's the big selling point behind Web3. So Web3 is all about decentralizing the backend. The problem is that the backend is only part of the equation. What do we do with the front end? Now, there are players in the Web3 space that are trying to decentralize the front end. There are certainly players in this space, but nobody's ever heard of most of them. That's the, that's the real big issue here. When you look at almost every Web3 company that's doing anything even remotely interesting, their entire front end is still running in the cloud, centralized. So it's like we're going to run the front end completely centralized, not decentralized at all, in the worst version of the centralized web, which is the cloud. And then we're going to try to convince the rest of the world, but oh, if we decentralize the back end, it's going to change everything. So some of my sarcasm is probably coming through here, but this is my criticism of Web3, is that they've not fully thought through this, <laughs> this concept. So if Web2.5 is saying anything, it's actually saying that the way to get to some of that future is actually to, in a way, decentralize the front end first rather than bolt that on later. So in a way, what I'm saying is that we need to package the web into a form where all of that communication can already happen directly to peers without a cloud and without these middlemen. And if we do that, and if we make the web 2.5 the way I'm pitching, which I think we are going to do and people are doing with Socket right now, real apps are being built in this way. But if we continue to do that and if that catches on and if other people build similar things to Socket and, and this becomes a bigger industry-wide movement, and I believe it will, someday we very well might be at the point where the, the best ideas on decentralized backends and blockchains and zero trust and all of that, where some of that can actually become a real thing and not just a, a niche side idea. Uh, I just don't think that we're a year from that or two or three years from that. I think the web needs to really deal with some big changes first. And they are of the form that I'm pitching in, in Web 2.5. So to directly answer your earlier question, Socket Supply is not a Web3 company. We don't use blockchains at all. There's nothing crypto whatsoever to it. But I would consider us to be a very friendly idea upon which Web3 will hopefully someday be built. And, and, and that's the best way I could position us. We're not Web3, but I hope that we are part of the way that, what, that the good parts of Web3 eventually happen. Yeah, I think that's a big problem with, you know, the way Web3 is being promoted is that it's this thing that can fix everything. And, you know, part of it is the, you know, the companies that are running these, you know, people that are running these web so-called Web3 companies, they're raising a lot of money. 
there, you know, it's the in thing to raise money for. So like there's so many projects I see, so many people that have web free companies and I look at it and I'm like, I can't see anything in your company that requires blockchain, requires crypto, requires NFTs. Like yes, you've la you know, put on some of those technologies and you're either doing a token sale, an ICO, or you know, you're getting venture funding or a mixture. But in reality of the core technology and the core business, it can be done, you know, without it. So it's like, yeah, it is definitely an interesting one. And I like that, you know, you made that distinction that right now, most of the things that these web-free technologies are being talked about and that they can solve are back-end related issues. So, you know, like storing data, data distribution, that sort of stuff. So well and good, but like I said, the front-end you know, like websites, applications, you know, or, or centralized, or, you know, like the company itself that's running this back-end, you know, decentralized system, they're still a centralized company. You know, still, most of them still have a CEO, they'll have a CEO, they'll have managers, they'll have employees, you know, they ha it's still centralized within them. And, you know, like take banking, for example, obviously that's a big one that people are using blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto, you know, that sort of stuff. Web3 to try and say they're going to, you know, solve it. Okay, you decentralize the back end. And from the perspective of, okay, if somebody is maliciously does something to one of the sites, you know, of a typical banking area, then it's a-okay. It, you know, it's still, you know, you still got all your data distributed, but the front end is still, for just from the business perspective, is still centralized. But on top of that, if you look at banks now, in the back end, they are actually pretty decentralized. They don't keep everything on one server. There are multiple servers, different types of servers, backups all around the world. So there's already decentralization in the back end. It's the front end that's the difficult part like you were saying and really the decentralization that people are using web3 for is just what people what bigger companies have already done you know like google you know where they have they have their own servers but their servers all around the world different locations multiple backups you know the you know the, the, they probably got servers you know underwater in mountains you know you know all all that crazy sort of stuff and you know soon to be with you know quantum uh, computing as well and they'll probably have some sort of you know backup systems in that that part of it is decentralized the front part is the centralized part so whether it's a new company or an old one if they choose not to give you access and they can do that or they go down it might not be you know them being malicious but they might go down for whatever reason you know bad business uh, practices or just bad business you know decisions you know you see that you know you look at crypto i'm sure you heard of like mangox BitConnect, like yes, they use decentralized technologies in the back end, but the front end, the business facing, and then some of the technology was all centralized. It was all relying on those companies remaining up, giving you access, and you know being a okay with you using it. Then there's you know something even further than that. Beyond that, you know people talk about okay, you know all this decentralization, and then I look at it and I think. Okay, you've got the back end decentralized. Let's say you handle the front end, but you do realize all these devices that you use to access, you know, this so-called decentralized system, 
you buy it off a few select companies. Those companies buy the components of a few select companies. Those companies are pretty much all in China or, you know, a, a, so, you know just a set of countries. It's like then you're reliant on the grid for electricity, which is a centralized system. Then the grid, you know, the production of that energy is reliant on certain systems, which are also centralized. It's like, okay, you can eliminate the centralization in data, but if, let's say, your broadband provider says you can't access the internet no more, or the government says we don't want this individual, this individual is too dangerous, and we do not want them, they're an enemy of the state now, we don't want them to have access, they take your internet away, they cut off your electricity, they start doing this sort of stuff, and your decentralized platforms are no good. Like, you need internet, you need yeah. hardware, you I need all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm certainly not here to make the pitch for Web3. Um, there are many smart, fantastic folks in that community that do a better job of that than me. But to connect it back to our conversation, the real thing that Web3 is about, from my perspective, is that the, the concept of decentralization is really about decentralizing trust. It's really about this concept of zero trust, meaning you know, the best analogy that I can give is like, if I have a... $10 in my pocket and I want to buy a pizza and you've got a pizza to sell me. When we go to make that exchange, um, one of us has to trust the other enough to hand it over first, right? Because you can't literally simultaneously hand the pizza in one hand and the 10 in the other. Somebody's getting the thing before the other. And in the physical realm, you know, if I hand you the $10 and you don't hand me the pizza and you start to walk away, I grab the pizza or whatever. But in the digital realm, instantaneous exchange is not really something that is very easy to do. And so there's a trust issue. Who does what first? If I pay for this, how do I know I'm getting what I've just paid for? How do I know that you're not going to run off and not give it to me? And how would we create a system where we could establish a transaction without that trust? That's what really what Web3 and decentralization is about, is about trust. And if you think about it from, the, from my perspective, which is data, it's one of my main reasons for joining Socket. The data is what we can't trust in these centralized systems. When my data, which I should inherently own, is actually locked up in some cloud server somewhere, it really does not matter if the company has 6,000 different copies of that data across 14 different zones of AWS or whatever. It doesn't matter how quote-unquote physically decentralized they are. Because logically, they're still centralized, meaning logically, there's still one ingress point, which is if a if that company wants to let me have my data, then I can have it. But if that company doesn't want to let me have my data or they can't because they're down or whatever, well, you know, we're completely I'm completely lost. I am data less. Right. So one of the reasons why I was attracted to the Web3 company, it was uh, it's a company called Hero that make that. Is the main company behind the Stacks blockchain, which is providing smart contracts for the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem. There's smart contracts on Ethereum that everybody knows about, but they, Stacks is providing smart contracts in Bitcoin. One of the reasons that attracted me there to Hero and to that idea was, man, I know that if my data is transacted in this way, that I'll always have access to it. That blockchain's never going away and there's never going to be some company that's like, nope, you didn't pay your subscription fee. You can't have your data back or whatever. So for me, 
This is about data ownership, even more than trust. And that's kind of why I'm focused more in this realm rather than in the Web3 realm. Not to say that trust around that is not important. That's the, that's the good part of Web3 that I hope that they still work on fixing. But if we don't condition the web to believe in the importance of data ownership, that my data that I create first on my device, it should first and foremost be my data and be on my device. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no other way for me to get that data anywhere else. If it's a social media post, I do also want that data to go out and have other people see it. If it's me, if the data that I'm creating is an order that I'm making for some product that I want, that data has got to be transmitted somewhere else as well. But what we really need, and this is, you know, Socket is part of this movement that we did not create, but we believe in called the local first software development movement. There, there's a website on this, the LoFi dev website that you should check out if you're interested. But local first says your data should first be on your device and optionally it needs to go out elsewhere, but it should first and foremost be on your device so that at all times you will always have the data that you're supposed to own. Now, the inevitable question that people get is, well, how am I going to get all the benefits that we get around centralization of data if I quote unquote decentralize, if I local first all of this data? For example, who's backing up my data? If I'm the only one holding my data and I my device gets lost or dropped in the ocean, then I lost all my data. Well, there's lots of ways that we can answer this. And actually, a peer-to-peer -peer web, a peer-to-peer -peer network that Socket is pushing and we believe is, is what the future of the web should be, offers way more answers to that question than the cloud-first centric model does. There are way more answers to what do I do with my data so that it's backed up? What do I do with my data so that I can synchronize it between my different devices? How do I make sure that data is quickly and efficiently getting to the people that I want and not going to the places I don't and keeping it protected? The, the movement of local first and what Socket specifically is providing with our runtime and our capabilities is enabling new answers to that question that the web has never been able to offer. The cloud-first version of the web that is Web 2.0 has no answer to that question. The only answer is stick your data up in somebody's cloud account on their servers and just hope for the best. And that's not good enough. And that's not a version of trust in my data that is acceptable to me. So that's a big driver for why I'm at Socket and why I'm pushing this is that we need to remake the web in this idea of local first, this idea that we own our data, that the idea that the data is ours first and foremost on our devices. And then we can build the benefits of synchronization and backup and all that other stuff without answering that, that the only way to do it is to shove it up into the cloud. There are so many other answers to that, but we have to break people of the addiction to cloud servers. It's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost a, a, um, a sense that people have no idea that the web could ever work without the server. And, uh, you know, we have to convince them that there is this other way of doing it. It's not based on anything web three, a peer to peer can happen and is happening right now. We have launched and are, are running, people are building apps where they communicate over the public internet using UDP with encrypted data going directly to devices no servers, 
even the discovery problem, which is kind of the biggest reason why people have the cloud is like, well, how do, how do you and me find out about each other? We've solved the discovery problem with no servers. So all of these things that we assume, I think generally about the web, that it, that the only way for it to really work and for it to really quote unquote scale is with the cloud. That's really all a, a bad sales job. We've been convinced that the only way to answer those questions was to put stuff out in the cloud. Now we finally have some compelling alternative answers. And you should ask yourself as an individual, what do I want with my data? I want my data synchronized. I want my data backed up. But do I, I, I also want ownership of my data. I always want to have my data. I don't want to ever have a moment where I don't have access to my data. I don't want to ever want a moment where my data might be being misused because it resides somewhere else and they're doing something that they haven't told me about. They're using it to train some model that's going to be used to, you know, navigate missiles and war or something like I don't want my data used in those ways. And the only way for me to know how my data is being used is for me to control it and me to control who gets it and what, and what, what they can do with it. Um, so individuals should ask that question. Businesses should ask this question. If I could build as a business, if I could build the same kind of experience or better for my users, but I didn't have to pay massive cloud bill to do it, why would I pay a massive cloud bill to do it? If I had a technologically feasible and scalable solution, which is what Socket provides, then why on earth would I optionally choose to keep paying tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in cloud costs? I, I could reduce that significantly. We're not saying there's no cloud, but most of what we're doing in the cloud is now optional and we have other options that are cheaper. Another great part about you know, this, this peer to peer to peer networks in general have been around. The idea has been around a long time. So there's lots of research that's been done on this, but one of the easiest things for anybody, you don't have to go read a white paper to understand this. When you talk about scaling a cloud centric experience, what that effectively amounts to is more cost because you need more servers to handle the spikes in load. The more you scale out your, your e-commerce business or whatever you build, that means you have a higher cloud bill, right? You have more complexity because now you've got 10,000 different servers that you got to deal with instead of just one. More complexity and more cost. So those things go up. If I if this was a visual podcast, you'd be seeing my my hand, my finger going to, to the right and up, right? It's like that. those things increase. The more you want to scale, the complexity and the cost go up. Here's the great thing about peer-to-peer -peer networks. When you scale a peer-to-peer -peer network, both the complexity and the cost go downward. My finger's now going to the right and downward because the bigger a peer-to-peer -peer network is, the automatically the more stable, the more robust, the more secure it becomes. So you have an inverse growth that the more you scale things, the more you benefit in a peer-to-peer -peer world. And last thing on this peer-to-peer -peer concept, you might think, okay, great, but I start out with a, my app, I start to build an app, and I don't have millions of people in the world using my app, so I don't have millions and millions of people to create a network on, and so I'll never get there, right? It's, like, it's kind of the bootstrapping question or the uh, cart before the horse question. How do I get the benefits of this network because I haven't yet built it, and how do I do that? That's, a, that's one of the biggest skepticism points I get when I talk to the people about this. Well, here's the great part about this. Sockets peer-to-peer -peer network is app agnostic, meaning 
that just because there is already apps being built on Socket's peer-to-peer network, when you go to build an app, you automatically benefit from the existence of the peer-to-peer relay-based network without having to do anything. You just get that benefit already, which means the more people build apps, the bigger and more robust that network gets. Even if every single app on that network only had a couple dozen users, just by virtue of there being hundreds or thousands of those apps, we're going to have millions of nodes on that network, and that network is going to be fully redundant, fully stable, fully robust. It never goes away, and data relays through, encrypted, protected, and it gets to where it needs to go, and we all get that shared benefit. So there are so many, like, I, I wish I could, I wish I had another, like, three hours to just, like, talk so much about this. This is so much better of a version of a Web 2.5 than what we currently have, where we're constantly having to connect to these servers and re-download. Every time I load a website, I'm effectively reinstalling and grabbing all of that. I'm beholden to those cloud providers. If I want to start a business and scale it, then I'm going to pay them more and more money. As a user, I don't get to own my data and I don't get to protect and control who has access to it. Every single negative has a better answer in this version of Web 2.5 that I'm pitching. And that's why I'm at Socket. That's why I'm excited. And I hope anybody that's listening find even a little tiny part of that interesting. Check out our free open source runtime. You don't have to pay a single penny for it. We're not a service provider. You know, we talked about like, products that you have to pay for. We don't have a subscription fee you got to pay for. It's a free open source runtime. You can build your apps on this, immediately start taking advantage of it and not pay us a single penny, right? That is why I'm excited about Socket. And I hope that people listening in will get excited too. Okay, I'm going to play, you know, devil's advocate there. So, you know, with the sort of system that you're talking about, you know, directly being connected to devices peer-to-peer, and, you know, obviously the larger the network grows, the better, you know, effectively becomes, more nodes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, What about, let's say, in the situation, you know, you're dealing with an Apple product, a Google product. If something goes wrong, you go to Apple, like you, like you, something goes wrong with your Apple product. You contact customer support, you ring them, you get a genius bar appointment, whatever it is, you know, uh, obviously some companies have better, you know, you know, customer relations. They have better ways of, you know, contacting, but you know, you go to them in this scenario where it's all direct, you know, it's all directly connected to each other. It's all peer to peer. Who are you contacting when shit hits the fan? Well, I, I don't mean to push back too strongly, but you you are conflating a couple of things in this question. So let's separate these things out. Can small businesses or big businesses build software experiences that people have problems with that need to be supported? The answer is emphatically yes. We've got 30 plus years experience with this companies building software experiences on the web that they charge for and that when things go wrong customers who are paying expect to be able to go to somebody and get help with it that is true and that does not change simply because we start talking about different delivery mechanisms different connection mechanisms right there will still be a need for a company who makes a piece of software to have the ability to support its customers if it wants to charge for that software That will continue to be true in Web 2.5. It'll be true in Web 3. It'll be true in Web 4. That will always be true. 
Okay. So none of that changes just because we choose a different infrastructure uh, where, you know, my boss likes to call this universal architect, uh, infrastructure, universal infrastructure, meaning everybody, we're distributing the infrastructure around the web. That won't change that, that universal infrastructure does not change the fundamental expectation between a customer who pays for something and the business that provides it. That expectation will stay the same and people will have to support it. What we're really talking about is actually we believe that businesses that build in this model will be more capable to actually support their users than what they currently are in large part because we're talking about a drastic cost reduction, which means that instead of these giant cloud companies extracting so much value from these businesses, the businesses have the money there. We're also saying that users themselves are more empowered, meaning that they need less help automatically. They already have access to their data and they don't need to contact support when the website's down. If the website's down or if the network's down or whatever, they still have access to their data. My, my favorite example of this is a, a banking application. We think of a banking application as absolutely, it has to be live connected in and there's one source of authority, blah, blah, blah. And I just think all oh, that's total nonsense, right? If I was offline at this moment, I'm not because we're recording this, but if I was <laughs> offline at this moment and I wanted to check my bank account balance, why is it that the only way for me to get access to my banking data is for me to have a Wi-Fi signal? Why can't I open up my app and be shown the data that my app showed me the last time I had the app open? Now, it can tell me that it was last updated 24 hours ago or whatever, but why is it that if I was offline and I open up my banking app, it says, sorry, you can't have access to your banking data. Maybe all I want to do is see what I bought three days ago. Maybe that's all I want to see. But I can't get that because I'm not online. I am dataless. That is absurd. It is absurd that we have built so much of our life around the idea that the only way for us to have access to our data is to be connected back to those companies. And if that's down for any reason, whether it's the company down or it's my Wi-Fi down or anything in between, then I now have a customer service problem where I'm having to call up the bank and be like, can you tell me about my transaction because I can't get it in my app, right? That's nonsense. That app sh should work local first. It should keep the data on my device and I should always have access to at least the last data that I saw. It should not go away. So I actually think really honestly that businesses, if they were built this way with local first and empowering users with their data and distributing the communications in a peer-to-peer -peer network that was more scalable and reducing costs for business. I actually think all of that works in favor of customers having fewer problems and getting answers to their problems quicker than what we currently have in the centralized model. I think that's definitely, you know, a lot to think about. And I do, you know, understand, you know, where you're coming from. You know, we've all listed, uh, I, I, I do like the idea of having your data offline. Obviously, you're not going to have the latest data. I mean, the, obviously, I know there's always going to be the concern and the thing that companies like banks, especially, will push back with security data concerns. But I think there's, you know, ways, you know, around that as well. But that will be what it will be. Like, even if they said you can only access it X number of times 
with a password or whatever before you have to verify. Even that wouldn't be too bad because you're right, there there'd be times when I need to go onto an application, it might be banking, it might be something else. I don't actually need an online, you know, functionality. I just need some data, data that was accessed last time, tech, especially text data, you know, that's so simple and so, you know, lightweight to store. If it's like some sort of video that's buffering, I can understand. That's obviously different. But, you know, just text data, you know, the ability, the fact that you can't access it is ridiculous. I remember I went to a, a supermarket last week or the week before and i have a club card with them and i had just got a new phone and the i hadn't logged in yeah i logged into most things but i forgot to log into that and i couldn't i couldn't remember the password couldn't log in and i couldn't use you know the club card all i needed was the qr code a statically fixed qr code which you know the funny thing is you can get that and add it to like your Google Wallet, your and um, your Google Wallet, your you know your even your photos wallet. app. You could take yeah. a photo of it. <laughs> photo as well, you know, you, you can which I've done before. You know, the, the you know there there've been times. It's funny every time I book something now, like a cinema ticket, definitely obviously plane tickets, but there's some some sort of an event, and they give me some sort of you know e ticket. Ideally, I'll try and print it out, but I'll always have a screenshot. My wife will say, why are you doing that? You've got your phone. And I'm like, it's on my email. I might not have access to the internet at that exactly. moment. You do not know. Like, I always do it with that. And there have been times when I haven't had access, and I'll just be, I'll be like, okay, I'll open up the screenshot. That's fine. But, you know, it, it, it is one of those things, like, it's ridiculous that they don't let you do that. Because with that club car supermarket example, I remember just saying to my wife, what they should do is, you know, it, it, like, there's five tabs. One of them is a club card. Tab is dedicated to that. Uh, it, it should be a matter of you opening up the tabs uh, that require internet connection, you know, like shopping, searching, that sort of stuff. Okay, leave that as, you know, we are now offline. Your app functionality is limited. But if I click the club card, it has the last stored club card, which should be the latest. Like, And ugh, it, it's ridiculous that they don't do that. And, you know, you know they want your data they want you always online they want you know they want you like that and, and they made it like that and i wish there is more you know offline uh, i do want more offline functionality hopefully more companies you know adopt it and hopefully it becomes like almost like law like you know like how they i don't know how it is in america right now like the iphones in america do they have the lightning port or USB-C? uh we're theorizing that it's coming that the next iphone's coming out in about a f in two weeks or something those are going to have those USB-C. but right now as as at the moment of this recording uh, they're still all lightning, but I think still I think the fifth the iPhone 15 I think is rumored to have the finally switched to you, but not because they want to. It's because the EU forced them EU to. law. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean that's the reason I'm bringing it up. Yeah, because EU law is you know saying it. Hopefully, some sort of law like that comes in and says that okay, if you have you know an application and data that is not really changing on the fly that you don't really need to be connected with. It needs to be accessible, you know, offline. 
and the thing with a law like that obviously you know if you're an indie developer you probably can ignore it because nobody's going to care you know if it's more difficult for you but the big boys are gonna have to do that and hopefully something like that does come along because you know we can access some of the online banking because there's times when i'll go on my online banking and all i'm looking to do is get my details or details of somebody i've paid before and they're saved on my account i'm not actually looking to do any actual banking and like you said that should be all accessible offline uh, I, I wish you could see me right now because i have this giant almost painfully large grin going from ear to ear because you're making my case for me <laughs> of yeah. why I mean, this it's is a, a better good case version to make things. it's it's mm-hmm. one of the the thing well what i'm liking about you know i've pushed back on you know on a few you know topics but you know overall like what you're saying when i listen to people in web free when they say it i think that they f- uh, feel like they're you know coming across the way your message is but they're not they're coming across as I'm doing this, but I can't see a particular reason why I'm doing it, but I'm going to make some BS reason of, you know, giving power to the people, you know, we're going to make you free. We're going to get off the government, you know, all, you know, all these, you know, different, you know, liberal ideas, but with the stuff that we're discussing, you're, you know, you're putting forward. I'm listening to, I'm like, you know, I actually want those things, how we could go about it, whether it is web three, whether it's web two, web 2.5, what it is, I don't know. And right now, I'm just I'm just concerned about. I do like those ideas. I because I remember a few. Oh, I'm trying to think how far back this was. Probably 2012. So I think I was in London at the time. 2012. So the App Store had been out. The the Apple App Store uh, on mobile had been out for four years at that point. I remember saying to a friend of mine that you know there really needs to be, and this was before progressive web apps as well. There needs to be a online app store that you can access via your mobile device because at that point responsive websites would be becoming more of a thing they would gain traction i was like you should be able to go into a website it looks like an app store you can download an application but you're not restricted to apple service and it just appears on you know your front screen or worst case, because you, you can add like a favorite or like a shortcut, it, it appears as you know like a favorite, like a bookmark, effectively, and it loads up the website. But it's so optimized, it kind of feels like an application as well. You know what progressive web, you know apps are, you know effectively, and what some even applications use, you know like web views, like Amazon, and I think Uber uses it. Like, but I remember thinking about it, it's like that just seems obvious and you know you're bringing up the same sort of points you know you're talking about it from a you know technology standpoint you know being directly connected with each other and being able to you know communicate and share all of this data and the other thing you know i'm quite passionate about because i'm a big you know gamer there's loads of online games i used to play as a kid i can no longer play because their servers are no longer running and i understand it from the the you know, you know the developers point of view if they're still around they might some of them are just you know they're dead and buried but if they're still around they can't practically you know keep servers alive for 15 20 year old games some do but most don't it's not practical especially when they're not making any new money from you know that game that's the reason i like the idea of that sort of you know peer-to-peer you know connected system instead of like a direct you know you know cur- you know connected directly to a server but 
and I do understand them saying, okay, you know, with the direct one, you're more likely to, at least that's what they're saying, you'll get a better connection. But I think I want a hybrid model where whilst their servers are running, fine, do it direct. Once their servers stop running, just go, just do a fallback on peer-to-peer. So as long as you've got a few people on the network, it still runs. So that way you get the benefits of what you're promoting on direct. But if you, for whatever reason you stop supporting, you get the benefits of peer-to-peer, which is always having it online and running. Yep, I totally agree. And I'm thrilled to hear that I've got you converted as well. And I hope people listening will be converted as well. I mean, I, I think there'll be a lot of people that will, you know, resonate, you know, resonate, you know, with, you know, with the message. And, you know, it's one of those things It's becoming more of a concern for a lot of people, their data, how they're accessing it, what the company's doing with it. Like, obviously, companies like in all of them, to be fair, it's not just one or two companies, but, you know, when you're getting companies like Instagram, Google, and, you know, AI tools as well. So it definitely is a big concern for people. You know, I just want to, you know, move on because you, you know, you spoke about, you know, writing books, being heavy into, you know, education. Why did you choose books, you know, specifically? Because some people choose to create like a YouTube channel, pump out a lot of content on that. You know, why books? Because I've wrote some books. It's pretty, it's a labor intensive task. Well, I chose books when I felt like the existing books didn't offer the right answers. Um, and this kind of comes, goes back to the earliest part of our conversation here, where I talked about trying to fight for people through information exchange. When I went looking for materials and especially books to try to help me learn JavaScript earlier on in my career. And I found that those were either non-existent or, they had the messages that I really disagreed with. Um, for example, the, one of the most famous JavaScript books, JavaScript, The Good Parts by Doug Crockford. It's a, again, a double-edged sword. It's been a great book that a lot of people really enjoy and they're glad and a lot of people own and have on their bookshelf and I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and I'm glad that people found JavaScript as a result of finding that book. But that book had a message which was, I, Doug Crockford, have come up with all of the things that you need to know about JavaScript. Trust me, don't go learn it yourself. I can tell you only the small little subsection of stuff you ought to learn and the whole rest of the language you don't need to deal with. And I just found that to be an incredibly uh, condescending and insulting kind of a message to receive that somebody else was telling me what were the good things for me to learn and I wasn't to even be trusted with these other parts of the language that were so bad that nobody could learn them. Somehow Doug was able to learn them, but the rest of us, we couldn't be trusted with that. And what I said earlier, I really mean, I think that people should be treated with the respect that says you deserve to know the whole story. You deserve to know what this information is. So I'm going to transfer that knowledge to you and give you my best suggestion on what you do with that knowledge. That's the kind of book I wanted and nobody had written that. And so I pitched uh, my book publisher on, I had this crazy idea that what if I wrote a book where I told everybody exactly how JavaScript worked. And I did not even know how JavaScript worked at the time. It's important to note. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to go learn it. And as I learn it, I'm going to document what I'm learning in the book form. 
that's what I pitched. And uh, thankfully, O'Reilly was interested enough in that idea. They, they thought that it might catch on. It's funny. I actually thought I would sell maybe like 2,500 copies of that book, book series. At the time, I was pitching a three-book series. And I was like, if I can sell tw- – this is what I told my editor at O'Reilly. If I can sell 2,500 copies, then I'll consider it to have been a success. And, uh, you know, to date, the book series across both editions, six books, two editions, I've sold well in excess of 300,000 copies. I thought 2,500 and I've sold over 300,000. I never could have dreamed that there would be that many people that would be interested in resonate with that message that somebody wants to tell me exactly how this stuff works. But it, it, it seems to resonate with a lot of, some people are haters, some people don't like it, but it's resonated with an awful lot of people out there. And I can't even know how many other hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people have read it for free on GitHub or read it through other sources or watched training videos or whatever. So uh, my answer to that question is I, I, I wrote the book that I wanted to read. Um, I don't have the same perspective on writing now that I did 10 plus years ago. And I keep getting people asking me, when are you going to write your next book? When are you going to finish this? When are you going to write that? Or, you know, everybody loves to make the joke. Anytime there's any topic, they're like, yeah, write that you don't know. And then they fill in the blank with whatever type of topic I've heard that a million times. I assure you, um, I don't feel today like I did back then where what I want is a book. And since I don't want a book for the things that I want to learn about right now, I'm not going to go write that book. So at this moment, I'm not uh, an author of books, but at that time I really felt like it was missing. I wanted it. It wasn't there. And I stepped up and I wrote it. Okay. And the other thing, you know, I'm on Amazon, I'm looking at, you know, your books, you know, they're rated well as well, you know, obviously selling well and rated well, you know, they kind of go hand in hand, but sometimes things sell well. And, you know, the rating on the best, you know, you don't know JS yet, you get started, number one, that's 4.6 stars, I think, what, 233 reviews, and, and you know, the next one is also 4.6 stars, 101 reviews for, you don't know JS yet, scope and closures, number two, and then 4.5 for functional light JavaScript Balance pragmatic FP in JavaScript. So yeah, you know they're really well, you know, rated, which is obviously, you know, also I think a feat in itself because that, that's also very difficult, especially when you do get a significant, you know, number of ratings. So you know, how long did some of these books take to write, and was that you know on off? Was it you know just dedicated to the book? Have you ever thought about just becoming a book? publisher not publisher sorry you know book writer full-time because these sold well obviously you've got this you know you don't know series which kind of feels like you know a four dummies kind of thing but slightly different uh, but you know a series like that so have you thought about just doing this full-time with the other stuff at the side and making it a go and do you think you could financially speaking i'll answer the last question very emphatically no <laughs> i don't think i could make a living uh writing right now I don't think people by and large are buying tech books nearly as much as they used to. And uh, I don't think you can, you know, I, I knew people at the time that I started writing the books, which was late 2013 and early 2014 when I was pitching it to O'Reilly. And I knew people 
who had done books before. So this is going back maybe to 2009, 2010. And they told me like, yeah, man, I opened up my first royalty check and it was 50 grand or whatever. And I was like, wow, that's awesome. Maybe if I'm successful, I'll make something like that. Don't get me wrong. I have absolutely been tremendously blessed from the financials of these books. And I do still make a, you know, what some people would consider a significant residual royalty amount every single month, even a decade later. And I'm grateful and thankful for that money. It helps pay for parts of my lifestyle that, you know, me and my family get to enjoy. And I'm glad for that work. And all told, the books opened up so many more other opportunities. For example, they're, they're the reason I became a teacher uh, was from the books and by becoming a teacher and promoting both, you know, each one promoted the other. I've made a, a great sum of money from also being a teacher. So it, I'm not suggesting in any way that there isn't anything to be made in this space, but the money that I'm currently residually making off of those book sales plus any money that I might make if I were to go invest the time right now would not hit even 25% at best of the money that I make in a month working full time. So it's not anywhere close and I couldn't just quit my job and do it. Um, to answer your question about how long it takes, it's very different depending on the material. So here's an interesting anecdote. The Scope and Closures book, not the one from the second edition, but the original Scope and Closures, that was the first book I wrote in the You Don't Know JS, even though there's the up and coming book that's, or, I'm sorry, the up and going book. <laughs> Forgot my own title. The up and going book is quote unquote the first book of the first edition, but I wrote that one later. So Scope and Closures, the first edition, was the first one I wrote. And this is a true story. I went to speak in India at a conference back in 2014. And on the plane ride, I had no Wi-Fi. It was like a 12-hour plane ride. And I had no Wi-Fi. But I had in my head all the things that I wanted to say about this topic. I had been planning to write this book. And so I just opened up my computer and started writing. And I wrote the entire first rough draft of Scope and Closures on that 12-hour plane ride to India. Uh, and I continued, you know, drafting and editing and working on it for months after, but like literally the first draft, I did 12 hours of Wi-Fi free distract distraction free flying is when I wrote it. Other books that I've written in the series, as well as the functional light book have taken upwards of months to write. So I would say on average, it takes about 200 hours to write and fully edit and fully produce a book, 200 to 250. Some of those books, it's been closer to 50 to 75 that it took, like that scope and closure. And other books like the functional light book were probably closer to 400. So somewhere on average, about 200 hours. If you do the math on that, that is a couple of months of full-time work. And I wouldn't be expected to be able to get two months of income off of a book that I spent two months writing, it would take probably 12 to 15 months of royalties to maybe see that return. So the economics just don't work and I don't see them getting better. I see them getting worse the way the community is going. So now I don't think I'm going to try a career in writing, but I've published um, more than 11 books now. Uh, that I've been part of 
or written. And I'm grateful for that experience. And I think I'm pretty good at writing. I just don't think that writing books is nearly, uh, you know, I never got the $50,000 royalty check that my friend got. So I never got, I, I never got rich quick off of writing books like some people do. What book was did that person write or what type of book? It was a Java book that he wrote. Okay, so he was still programming. It wasn't like it was a some sort of fictional book. story or nothing like that. Yeah, he, he, I think he published it in 2008 or something like that. It was a Java book, and it was extremely popular. He sold a bunch of copies, and he got a huge chunk of money from it. So. Okay. And was that through a publisher like O'Reilly as well, or did he self-publish? It was an O'Reilly book, yeah. Okay. I mean, what made you go to, one, O'Reilly, and then more broadly speaking, to a publisher in the first place instead of because, you know, you, especially nowadays, you know, you can't publish, you know, a book yourself. I do self-publish now. I don't work with a publisher anymore. Oh, you don't? I did. I worked with O'Reilly for the first edition of the You Don't Know JS books, and ever since, I've self-published. So I self-published the functional book, and I self-published the second edition of the You Don't Know JS books. And I would not work with a publisher again because, as you said, I already have the established reputation and name that I need that if I were to try to write and sell a book, I could do so. I did not have that in 2013. I was somewhat known in the conference circuit, but I don't think that without O'Reilly, I would have done anywhere near that kind of volume. And so I needed that to promote it. It's also very important for anybody listening, if you're like thinking about doing this yourself, one thing you should really be aware of is that publishers today, O'Reilly included, do not do what they used to do, but they still take the same percent cut they will still give you a contract where they're taking a 90% or more cut and only giving you a 10% royalty cut on the books, but they are doing just a tiny fraction of what they used to do. When O'Reilly signed the contract with me for the first edition, they did a lot of marketing work. And that's a part of the reason why the books were so well known. They put them at a lot of events and they printed up hundreds and hundreds of copies and gave them away for free to seed the community with these books are great and you should get them. And people saw them on desks and then bought them. O'Reilly did a lot for me in the first edition. And as I started to talk to O'Reilly about doing other work after that, by that point, O'Reilly was like, we don't do any of that stuff anymore. And they still wanted to take their big 90% royalty cut. And so that's a big part of the reason why I went self-publishing after that was that publishers don't do what they used to do. Um, in fact, O'Reilly stopped selling books and went to like all online subscription. I think they might be selling them again, but they literally just announced to authors with no notice that they were shutting down their online store and going only to subscription. And they, they sell courses no as well. Yeah. So anyway, just as a, as that to take away to anybody that's listening, um, you know, I don't know that I would recommend that people try a publisher these days because you're going to pay the same amount of your royalty and you're not going to get anywhere near the effort from them that you would have gotten a decade ago and that I did get a decade ago. Oh, yeah. And like, uh, I know what you mean. Like, the books that I published, I get less than 20%. I think I'll get 14, 15, 16% royalties. And I remember when I, you know, read that, uh, read that in the contract when I first signed, and that was back in 2014. 
having you know made apps on the app store and getting 70 percent you know royalties i remember thinking you know this is so low uh, and i i showed my dad my dad was like he knows a writer uh, now no, I think he knew someone that worked at a, at a you know one of these publish at a publishing company and he asked him and he says that's good what you're getting like the 15 16 percent so the fact that you're getting above 10 percent is actually very good and I was like that's insane that is considered you know to be good and that's the other thing I don't know your take on it but you know when you know, you get a lot of people nowadays that are moaning about, you know, Apple doing this, Apple doing that, obviously, you know, Apple versus Epic Games with Fortnite, Apple, you know, with their royalties. And I'm like, they want to take 30, 40% for the services they're offering. Either, you know, accept it or don't publish on their platform because, you know, I've seen how it is in the book world. And like I said, they, the book world is not doing as much these days as they used to. And they're giving you jack all royalties. It's, it is really insane. And then you've, uh, I'm sure you've come across this where there's new publishers where you pay them. Have you come across that? I don't think I've come across that. That sounds crazy to me. I don't yeah, know. yeah. I, I mean, it's a crazy thing. So, so, so I'm trying to think of what the, 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 the particular, you know, name for, you know, for them. But there's a, uh, publishers are doing this thing there where, you know, a unknown writer, you know, goes to them, you know, like how you did, 10 years ago and you say i got this idea and they're virtually saying to everyone yeah you know your book's a good idea um, but it's a bit you know you're untested the book's untested so we just need you know some upfront costs to you know basically help you know launch the book and the upfront costs aren't like 50 quid or something or like 20 quid they're they run in the thousands of you know like dollars so yeah you're forking out thousands to these publishers and from what i've heard they do jack or like that's like you know we're going to market it like this we're going to do this i think they're kind of promoting it as they're going to do what the old publishers of the old days used to do but they don't even do that now and you know i've come across people where they've published with them and i saw the book and i'm i was thinking the book's not the best but they basically sold them that it is you know say yeah your book's amazing and they paid them. They were, like, they were thinking a few thousand dollars or a few thousand pounds isn't that big of a deal if the book's going to do really well the way they're kind of hinting, and then it doesn't. Uh, again, I can't remember the name of the you know this type of publisher, but it, it's it's becoming a pretty big thing now. Yeah, that seems uh, you know I understand why people might go that direction, but that does not sound like the the model that I would encourage people to go in. I understand why people without already having an established presence might hope to, to get something out of that. But those are similar to those employment schemes that uh, some of the tech boot camps had where they're like, yeah, we'll train you, but then you'll give us 10% of your salary for the next 10 years or something. And I just I think all of those models are are bad for people in the long run, so I wouldn't encourage it. Oh yeah, and you know, I've just had a quick Google. They're called vanity publishers, and uh, sometimes they're referred to as subsidy publishers, and just more broadly, the vanity press. So you know, yeah, you're paying them to you know publish you know your work, and it it is crazy. Like I said, like some of the the amounts that they're charging charging is crazy like because if it was okay we've got this platform 
it does really really well it's like kind of exclusive you know you know we're not accepting anyone you have to you know you know pay like a subscription or something to be part of it like 10 pound a month or something you know something not that crazy that i understand more than then them just saying your book's amazing we're going to publish it you know they do publish it uh, but they you know, they just pu- publish it on the platforms you can publish you know yourself so it's it is crazy, you know. You know when you think about it. So what? Just it. It bears, I guess, mentioning for context that when I pitched O'Reilly, I think they probably would have done a traditional publishing deal with me, where they would have done some sort of advance, paid to me rather than me paying to them. Yeah. They probably would have done some sort of advance against royalties. I don't think a lot of people fully understand what that really means. That's not free money. That's literally just an advance mm. where your first several royalty checks will be zero because they're. And maybe even like years worth of road to check zero because it's literally just an advance. It's not like a bonus or something. But anyway, because uh, I didn't understand that when I started. But I think O'Reilly probably would have done a small advance. At the, the early days of publishing in the early 2000s, it was not uncommon for them to pay twenty or 30,000 advances on books. And that's probably because they were making a lot more in the time, but it was not uncommon. By the time I was writing in 2013, they probably still would have maybe agreed to 5,000 or something. I don't know. But I didn't pitch them on that because I didn't want that. I actually pitched them on, let me kickstart this book project. And what I'm going to do is do a Kickstarter, a crowdfunding campaign. I wanted to judge whether the market was there before I put in the effort to write the books and before O'Reilly risked uh, an upfront um, advance to me. And so I did, I I ran it and I said, this is win, 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 O'Reilly, if you agree to this, because the only thing you have to risk is that if I get crowdfunded and if I write the books and if these books are published, the only thing that you have to do instead of giving me a cash advance is that you have to promise to ship me this X number of printed copies of the book so that I can give them out to my Kickstarter backers. That's all I'm asking, O'Reilly. That's your only risk. My only risk is I put this out there. I put this idea out there. If people don't fund the Kickstarter, then I don't have to write the books because there's not sufficient demand. And they don't have any risk because none of those people have to put in money unless they are legitimately securing an actual publishing arrangement with O'Reilly. So that was my pitch. I was like, this is win-win all the way around. We should do this. And thankfully, O'Reilly agreed to that. I don't know if they'll do those sorts of things these days, but I had hoped that more authors would go that route because that's the route I think that would make most sense. Oh, yeah. And that is a more, obviously, traditional model. This is just some new model that there's new publishers that are popping up and you look at the quality you know the you know of their library of books it, it, it is just really mediocre but you know you know that's totally you know obvious you know there's always gonna be people exploiting people i, I would just say be careful if somebody's asking you money to do work and give the work to them i, I would be very hesitant like you know especially when you say huge amount of money uh, i personally wouldn't do it and I will be very reluctant, especially when that money's a lot to you. Let's say if you got hundreds of millions and a few thousand isn't that big of a deal. Obviously, you know, you don't want to get ripped off, but it won't affect you the same way. Like the people that I know that have done it, those few thousands meant a lot to them. Like it, they, they was counting on it, almost changing their life uh, effectively. 
So it's the be very careful. So that's basically you know my message, you know around that. So really enjoyed the podcast today, Kyle. Um, just want to you know start wrapping up now. One of the things that I do when you know we get to the end is like a rapid fire set of fun generic questions. Are you up for that? Just a quick rapid fire. Yes, definitely. Okay, so if you would, I know you said you're not, you know, you don't want to run a company, but if you did run a company, would you rather run a 10 person company or a 1,000 person company and why? 10 person company for sure. 1,000 person company means that I'm going to have like 16 levels of management between me and the people <laughs> that are working. And I don't want that kind of management. And I don't know how I would run a 1,000 person flat company. So I definitely would rather run a 10-person company if I had the choice. Okay. And would you rather have 5 million US dollars up front or half a million a year for the rest of your life and why? I'd rather have uh, 5 million up front. Um, And the reason why is that I would create with that 5 million, uh, I would fund and create several different forms of recurring revenue that I think would add up to way more than a half a million a year. Uh, so if I had that money, I know exactly how I would create several sources of revenue that I'd live off of. Okay. And would those, you know, just briefly going into that, would they be business ideas, tech ideas, or would they be just more conventional, you know, investments like property stocks, that sort of stuff? Uh, it's a, it's a little bit of both. Actually, there's a couple of services that I know I could create that would be relatively self-running if I had the money to fund them and uh, I'd fund those and get those up and going. So I would piece together a variety of different revenue sources rather than create one big revenue source. I already have several from the royalties and I'd put several more in and I think I could easily replace my full-time income with that residual income. And then I would retire to an Island in the Caribbean. (laughs) So next question, what's your favorite board game, video game and movie? Ball game. You no, mean board like game, board, sorry. Board, board game. game. Sorry, board game. Favorite board game? Probably Risk. Um, nobody ever plays it with me. I kind of like Monopoly a bit. And my family, we play this uh, this old game called Clue, um, where you have like, I remember that. I, like, yeah, yeah, we play Clue. I, I, I think that's a very British game, that one is. But, but we also have a bunch of card games. I play a lot of yeah. card games. I've actually gotten into. It's kind of sounds boring, but I've been playing solitaire like a lot lately. Um, just kind of, it's calming and uh, it kind of centers me a little bit. What was the net? You said board meeting, a board game. What? What else? The video game and movie. Do you, just before we move on, the, the solitaire. Are you playing that physically or like on the computer? No, literally with a physical deck of cards, and I love it. physical. Yeah, I mean, I, I I played a bit when I was a kid on the computer, and I enjoyed it, and I was I got pretty decent at it. I remember trying to play. You know, physically, because I only played it a few times. It was just a bit hard to, you know, just manage the cards and, you know, knowing yeah. what to do. Uh, you know, versus, obviously there's the rules of the game of how to win. Then the, the then there's the rules of what to do when something's clicked and where you're putting the cards. Uh, but sure. it, I mean, I feel like going back and playing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you may see more. For, I'll, I'll just hint to the audience. You may see more from me on this topic in the near future. <laughs> okay, that sounds interesting. So yeah, favorite right, video so game and movie. Video game and movie. So uh, favorite video game is absolutely Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And I would say 
um, Tears of the Kingdom, except I haven't played it yet. I bought it and I've been so busy. I haven't yet even opened up the package. I'm desperate to get some free time to play Tears of the Kingdom. But man, I played me a lot of Breath of the Wild and it's the best game ever invented. And I would say it only replaced the previous best game ever, which was the original Zelda on the original Nintendo that I played when I was six. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I know oh, a lot of people. Favorite movie you asked. Yeah, you, you asked favorite movie. Uh, that's hard for me to totally pin down. I think I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to tell you two that are tied. Um, one is Shawshank Redemption. Love that movie. Love Morgan Freeman. Um, just any. I've probably watched that movie a hundred times. Anytime it's on, I stop and watch it. And the second one is The Last Samurai, the Tom Cruise movie. Not many people know about this. But um, such a beautiful movie with a really moving message. Um, so those are tied for best movie for me. Okay. And, you know, just going back to the favorite video game, possible. so you mentioned, you know, you know, Legend of Zelda uh, on Nintendo Switch. What's your preferred mode of play? Portable, handheld, or docked? Docked, for sure. Docked, um, okay. I sometimes play portable, but I would say... 95% of the time I'd rather be docked in front of a TV. Okay, so I'm guessing if they, you know, came out with a pro version and the pro version was docked on like it's only a physical, you know, hardware but it's a successor to this and you get more power, you know, 4K, 60 FPS, all that jazz, I'm guessing you you would opt for that over let's say if they had more of a another new switch but that was portable and and a little less powerful. Yeah, so I do actually own the Switch Lite, which they came out with a couple of years ago for portable gaming, and I would keep using that occasionally. I pull that out and play on, but um, then I transfer my data back to a docked version and play it on a bigger screen. I'm getting older, so I need bigger screens to look at. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And so uh, what video game are you looking forward to? Not, you know, Tears of the Kingdom, something else. Oh, man. I don't keep track of any games, so I don't even know what's coming out. I I literally couldn't give any answer. My I I, I guess the only answer that I could speculate on is that um, I always love a good Metroid game, and they seem to have kind of reinvigorated that franchise. So I hope maybe there's another Metroid game coming out. Um, oh, and there's another game that I played that I really loved, um, and I. I want the second version of it. I haven't gotten it yet. Um, the first one was Hollow Knight, um, and I loved Hollow Knight. That's a great game. And I think there's a Hollow Knight 2 that either came out or is coming out. I look forward to that one, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's definitely... Uh, I mean, there's quite a few games I'm excited for, like Starfield. Uh, there's a bunch of games I've bought that I need to get you know, get through. Just one of the things, as you get older, you have family, career, responsibilities, etc., etc. You just get less time, unfortunately. Definitely. So, final question, two-parter. Does money buy you happiness, and what does a good life mean to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are deep questions. So money buying happiness is really kind of the wrong question in my opinion money buys you uh privileges and affordances and what you do with those privileges and affordances can either translate to happiness or not so it's definitely an indirect relationship between the money that you get 
and what you can create for yourself. For example, my family knows that my work is heavily related to my traveling, traveling and speaking, which takes me away and that keeps me away from my kids. But they know that if I'm gone, it means I'm earning money. And they know that that's going to translate to dad's going to take us on a better vacation as a result. Or they know that dad's going to use his, you know, frequent flyer air miles to upgrade us to first class or, you know, whatever. So we trade the kinds of privileges that I get from the money. And I am very fortunate. We trade those privileges for things that we intentionally invest in. We send our kids to this really amazing summer camp that both of them is life-changing that they love and it's not cheap. And both my wife and I look at each other and we're like, this is not even an optional cost. Like the, the joy that's on their faces that we get to provide them for, we want to send them to. So uh, indirectly money does that. The bigger question you asked is what does a happy life look like? It looks like a life where I know that myself and my family are taken care of and we have what we want. We have the ability to enjoy each other and I don't have to worry right now. I worry an awful lot about a lot of things and it looks like getting to the point where I've been able to afford to remove those worries from our life through various decisions. Personally, I'd love to retire to a Caribbean Island. That's where I feel most at home. And so I hope someday that I eliminate all the other obstacles that prevent that from happening. Okay. Yeah, I mean, definitely a good answer. And, you know, I do like that, you know, the it is one of those things where, you know, you can argue money will and won't, but the reality is, you know, like you say, you know, your family knows, your kids know, you know, when dads are making money, it means you know, certain things are going to be easier or better, like a new holiday, the new console that's coming out, the, the, you know, it's, it's not going to, it's, it's going to be less of a matter of, we can't afford it more of a matter of you can have it or you can't have it based on particular reason. You know, that's the way I'm trying to, you know, run you know my life. I'm 31 years old now. I've got a daughter, I've got a son on the way. And I, you know, I want, I'm saying to myself, I want to, I'm, I'm in a decent enough position already to be fair. And I'm able to do it, but I want to definitely be in the position when they're older and ask and they're, asking because my daughter's only 16 months so she's not asking for anything yeah but when she's asking for stuff uh, and especially expensive stuff uh, if the answer is no i want it to be no because it's not good or she can't have it outside of the reason i can't afford it and because i i definitely remember as a kid i had plenty of no's but no matter how he was masked up, it was simply because my parents couldn't afford it. Uh, whereas there was some stuff they said no to, they could afford. And it was a matter of, like, it, I look back and I think that was probably a good idea that they said no to it. But I want that to be the decision for everything I say no to and also say yes to. So nice way to end the podcast, Kyle. I want to thank you for coming on today. I want to thank you, thank all the listeners for joining us in this uh, about or two and a half to 1240 you know podcast i was talking about a lot of interesting topics and it's good to get a different take on you know the future of the web the you know a lot of the ideas that are promoted that are typically web free or but you know the alternative you know ways of doing it so again kyle thank you for coming on yeah thank you so much it's been a privilege and an honor i enjoyed the conversation Fantastic. And for anyone listening, I'll see you in next week's episode of FIDEV. Bye-bye.